0: Right. Well, apparently, well, King Arthur, apparently Arthur was the king of the Bretons, which was the Welsh people, the ancient Welsh people back in the day. Mm. And then obviously, it got Anglicised, because that's what happens. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then he's now an English uh, king, basically, and Merlin is like this Dumbledore wizard. So the truth way. is that he's uh, was the was of the Bretons. Yeah. Am I saying that right? I'm sure they say Bretons or Brit- Britons. But it's Bretons, weird. yeah,
1: Bretons, Bretons. Yeah,
0: Bret- Bretons are the people in Brittany, eh? Northern France. They they, are the same, they have the same uh, language as uh, the Welsh people. Mm-hmm. So same uh, same dialect. But is it true? Sure there's a lot of Welsh people in is Argentina or somewhere like that. Those... Yeah, in
1: Patagonia. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. How
0: did that happen? I think just Welsh settlers went there, looking trying to escape english rule <laughs> basically well they just they just looked i think they just needed loads of farmers and stuff it's the same as yeah. america mind i read a book on um this welsh newspaper in america in the 1800s like a lot of welsh speakers are over there because basically america back end needed loads of farmers and workers and welsh people were just very industrial industrialized so oh, wow. yeah just workers slave workers basically they <laughs> just went all over there and uh yeah, loads of, loads of, um, community, like there's a, there's a, I was speaking to this American from Philadelphia on like one of these training things. I said, oh, where are you from? He says, Philadelphia. I said, oh, do you know Bryn Mawr, that famous college? He's like, yeah, yeah. I lived on the road. I said, do you know that's a Welsh name? He's like, nah. So yeah, that means big hill in Welsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's named after the place in Wales because of the, f- the guy who, the guy who founded it was Welsh. He's like, no idea. He's not even taught. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff not taught, you know? Yeah. So I wonder about all this, the history, you know, the Romans and stuff as well. I was reading the book the other mm-hmm. day on the Celts, and the Romans made out that everyone that was not Roman were barbarians. But actually, they, were. they weren't they uh, were like barbarians, like, you know, eating mud and stuff like that. They were actually quite civilised in a way.
1: Well, loads uh, of Celtic Druids, guess what? Get this, they spoke ancient Greek. Is that right? Celtic Druids spoke ancient Greek. They say strange yeah. thing.
2: Julius Caesar yeah. said that they were Pythagoreans, which is a really strange thing to say. A lot of historians are quite puzzled by that. He says the Druids were Pythagorean, which is a, a Greek philosophy.
0: That's interesting. Because yeah. they did say that the, um, the Bavarians, the Celts, were like they loved to drink, didn't they? They were like they drink without like, diluting. The Romans
2: say that a lot. Yeah, they like to drink wine. I think yeah, they, they all did. like... They, they
0: like, like to make an excuse. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we're the Romans. We're civilized, and they're, like, crazy animals, and that's why we are fighting them. And it's like, they just wanted to be in peace, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But
2: the Celts, the Celts
0: made their way to, um, to Turkey. So uh-huh. they, did, they did go quite far, like. So it yeah, isn't the, interesting.
1: The yeah. Romans were quite judgy about the Druids. They said that they practiced human sacrifice and things. I think there was a lot of neb- yeah. negative propaganda from Julius Caesar.
2: They say, they tend to say they drink a lot, they don't, they go around naked, they don't have proper laws, they, they perhaps humans are all these kind of like, they make the right to be kind of like cavemen or something almost, like just savages and stuff.
0: But they... It's all not, it's like miles away from that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: You think it, it's quite, far, like there's, um, you know, then they, they basically started aiming at the Germanic people and the they? so they had the Celts and stuff who were the first enemy. And then it was like, right, it's the German people now. They're the Germanic tribes, the, the barbarians now. The Celts are the, the Gauls. What are they called? Yeah. The Gauls? The Gauls. Yeah. yeah, the Gauls. They're a bit different now. The okay, now. And yeah. then uh, the German. It isn't just in mind. You think about how uh, history is written by that perspective all the time. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Written from the perspective of the victors.
0: Well, they also
2: they have mixed feelings about some barbarians. So the Germans and the Gauls get kind of quite they're quite judgy about them, right? The Egyptians are kinda of like borderline, like they've got kind of mixed feelings, it depends which Egyptians you're talking about. The Parthians, who are technically barbarians,
1: mm-hmm. like Yeah, they're all over them.
2: They're kinda of like Yeah, but they're like, oh they've got better weapons than us.
1: Yeah. So sure. they Respect. can't really sneer at them Respect, too much. Yeah. Right? And
2: they they got their
1: They got better shiv.
2: Yeah. They got their asses handed to them a couple of times by the Parthians. So they were like they <laughs> yeah. couldn't put them down too much.
0: See, that's it. See, but then then you got good old Marcus who saw everybody as human beings, apparently.
2: Yeah, well, he says so. Like, I mean, he says that the summations, the one of the strangest things he says at one point is that he says, people who take pride in capturing summations who were, like, one of these barbarian races, like, not Germanic, but, um, like, uh, like, uh, they were in Poland and Hungary, kind of, they spoke Iranian, actually. Like, they, um, he says, someone that takes pride in capturing them has the mentality of a brigand or a robber. Hmm. Like, so, so there's one little fleeting comment in the Meditations where he seems to kind of, like, say, you know we shouldn't really be viewing these people as just like uh, slaves um but he he nowhere he says everywhere throughout the meditations that we should treat other people as our brothers and sisters and so on he doesn't say roman citizens he just says everyone like Hmm. people in general which is kind of interesting
0: yeah i think the romans had a good the good idea of making everyone a citizen that was a good idea and stop the fight didn't it but I, I think it was Julius Caesar who said the the Celts or the barbarians would like trade humans for beer and wine. <laughs> so, like, they were like, these guys will literally trade their own people or slaves for like wine. So, I don't know what was going on back then. Oh, no. I'd trade you for wine. Would you trade me for, yeah, wine? Trade you for wine? Anyway,
1: yeah. you know, yeah. just,
2: like,
0: in a plastic bottle.
1: Wine in a plastic bottle, yeah. <laughs> I'd trade Donald for plastic bottle wine.
2: Harsh.
0: Right. So the, the, there's nice wine, that maybe in Greece and Italy as well. It comes in like a canister, like a you know, like a, uh, carton.
1: The carton wine, yes. yes. Also, also in plastic bottles. It's very nice. Really.
0: Yeah. So they got it better than us. So what's happening with the wine and stuff now? Are the uh, Europeans are they holding it? And British Brexit and not having any? Uh-huh. How is well,
2: Brexit affected wine?
1: Well, it's not affected Greek wine because hardly any Greek wine gets exported to the UK anyway. There's loads of amazing Greek wine. That's why when people come on holiday, they drink really well in Greece. Mm-hmm. But none Cheap. of it gets exported. Why
0: does it not get exported? Greece, the Greece needs money.
1: Yeah, it's expensive to export it, and there's more. There's more of it now than there used to be, but it's not at all common. Um, mm. I think you can find like there's like one Greek wine that you can buy in, Tesco's or something. But, um, <laughs> there not we are. Super common.
0: Never yeah. had Greek wine. But yeah, but I want um, to volcanic the
1: volcanic soil.
0: What's it? What was it called? Volc. Well, there's lots of volcanic
1: soil in uh. Greece, like minerally soil. It's good for the vines.
0: Uh-huh. Mm, I'll try it. But uh, for anyone, for everyone listening now, if you've got any questions for these lovely people before we start, then pop them in the box. Can be so, on anything.
2: Uh, Stoicism, Greek wine. wine. Yeah. So we're good. we should say uh, what we're going to talk about, Scott. We said we'd get into things a little bit quicker. Let's take like so. Well, we'll,
0: well I know people. I know people are going to want to watch that interview, so it'll be. Uh, oh,
1: what time's the interview?
0: It'll be on in like an hour and a half or something like that. Right.
2: Okay. All oh, right. Okay. Um, well, we better get it done before that. Like uh, we have, um, we've got quite controversial topic today.
0: I'm I'm keen for controversy because abolish the royal family. Let's go, <laughs> do it. <laughs>
2: We've got um, we've got so I don't know we is Medea a princess isn't she?
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah like
2: yeah. we've got some problems with royalty, some a controversial royal, like no
0: shock, no shocker.
2: Yeah, and uh, we've got a bit of Greek tragedy going down. Like, and when they say tragic, like you know, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty, it was very tragic. It's like they've turned the dial up to eleven, and in tragedy terms, I like it. It's very funny. It's very tragic. It's not funny. <laughs> it's funny now. Sorry, I'm going, I'm going into
1: like I'm going into like I'm going into like teacher mode. But the, way that, the way that we funny. use the way right. that we use tragic in English uh-huh. is completely different to the All way right. the Greeks yeah. mean it. So we just say tragic to mean sad, but like tragedy has actually got like a technical
2: yes, like.
0: Um, Lalia, we got a, got a compliment here from Suzanne saying I love how you can ask Lalia. Oh, Leila, she's asking is that Lalia? Lalia is my name. It's correct.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Lalia just noticed it. Leela, spelled Leela, though, isn't it? No, it's Lala. spelled Lalia. On, is it?
1: Okay. Um,
0: she says, "I love how you ask Lalia anything, and she has a really knowledgeable answer." See, oh,
1: that's so, thank you, Suzanne.
2: That means. But, but it says
0: then Donald, not so much. <laughs> joking, yeah. Donald, joking. I wow, get okay, all my your, knowledge, knowledge.
2: from Just know Ooh. Ooh.
0: <laughs> Lally, I got a question for you.
2: Yeah.
0: What what school of philosophy do you follow? And look, Donald's not going to kill you if you don't say stoicism. Okay, I'll cover my ears. Okay. Actually,
2: what be- is?
1: The truth yes, is, I don't think I was a stoic until two things happened. I be- well, three things. I became a teacher, I got COVID, and then I met Donald. And I think these three things have made me a stoic. I think I'm a stoic philosopher now. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, have you ever uh, practiced any of the virt- the cardinal virtues recently? Where's Moderation. The- Moderation.
1: You? Yeah. Um, can I can I give an example of my moderation?
2: Yeah.
0: Are you doing moderation in writing? Are you doing moderation in your work in your writing? Or are you? Yeah. Uh,
1: little and I'm... often, yeah, mm-hmm. little and often. So like, I've got writing projects at the moment. I kind of was getting up every day and doing a little bit. Yeah, she's free. I've been I've been journaling. Like I've been trying to be really disciplined at the moment. So I get up every morning, and because I make coffee for like ten minutes in the morning, I sit and I write in my journal while the coffee nice. brews. That's perfect. And then I always have a little break mid morning. So after my writing, I get all hunched over at my laptop. So I have to stretch. So then I do my yoga, so it's perfect. So I have yeah. like journaling and yoga all before midday. So that's my moderation that's okay. yeah, and discipline. You're good on
2: that, yeah. And then it has... all
1: falls apart in the afternoon. But hey, you know what, <laughs> stoics aren't born overnight.
0: Room was not. Well, stoics are now, you know, you can never be the ideal sage, is it, Donald? Can never be perfect. No, like, not even
2: was, even Zeno wasn't perfect. Socrates wasn't
0: perfect. Also, there's a there's a few questions here for um, Greek games as barbaric as they look. Yeah, yeah, I can believe the the Greek games as barbaric. Yes, and then this is a follow-on. Is it true in ancient Greece they killed mm-hmm. off loads of animals and had tigers fight? Or is my dad chatting poo poo? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Interesting England. philosophical question. That sounds more
0: Roman. The Romans. Roman
1: wild animals in the amphitheater
2: yeah
1: yeah do you want do you want an amazing bit of etymology yeah go on okay so you know the arena the gladiatorial arena where the animals were killed Mm -hmm. okay do you know where the word arena comes from no oh my god it's so exciting the Mm -hmm. roman word for sand is harena, because the arena covered with a layer of sand to soak up the blood. blood
0: Oh my days.
1: An arena Santa. is something which is sandy to soak to soak up blood. Oh my god. Yeah.
2: They and are they are they
0: are butchers.
2: Everything. Hippopotamuses. What? Like there was nothing the Romans wouldn't kill. Like Commodus, Marcus Aurelius's son, had special crescent headed arrows made and he had hundreds of ostriches released into the Colosseum and he'd shoot all their heads off. That's really, <laughs> it's horrible. Like sorry. Like, ostriches like, are like trigger trigger warming, right? So you can't of, do the trigger warning <laughs> after, after the story. reaction, <laughs> like have to rewind into the trigger warning. Like, so he yeah. shot the head off a lot of ostriches, and they ran around like headless chickens, except bigger.
0: That's a good aim. To be fair to him, yeah. that's a no, really no. good aim.
2: It's both cruel and impressive.
1: But that's yeah. so rare, like yeah, because ostr- like little ostriches? I mean, big ostriches. But like, what, are, what did they ever do to him? I mean, they're totally harmless, right? Got are big, they big... nothing.
2: Well, they're not harmless. I bet they could kick you. Yeah, they kick your ass. Like,
0: they're, pretty, they're pretty dangerous, actually. But they, um, and then years ago, uh, Greek coffee, why is it so much better than normal coffee? And my follow-on, is Greek coffee the same as Turkish coffee?
1: Yes, yes. To answer the second question first, Greek, t- Greek coffee and Turkish coffee is the same. It's finely ground coffee beans, not the same as instant it's like okay. it's still like silty it's like if you if you make it and drink it it's like mud in the bottom of your cup
0: yeah
1: but it's not i mean it's an acquired taste not not a yeah. lot of people like greek
0: is coffee is it like stronger
1: it's strong but it's also muddy it's, it's kind like of history, got a muddy or, flavor
2: it's a bit, it's quite
1: concentrated mm. it's not mm. a
0: bit did the greeks did the ancient romans have coffee
1: no because it came from did they have the drugs
0: yeah. Did yeah. they have some kind of like... They had good drugs. Yeah, they had good drugs
1: as Yeah. yeah. They good drugs. yeah. Wow. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and was there like... <laughs> was there like a like a party atmosphere? Were they like socially taking drugs?
1: Well, they were socially drinking because that was yeah. like the symposium. Oh, they were definitely into...
0: Like opium or something on the party. They, they like Were they like... Was part of the religious ceremonies.
1: Yeah, drugs were part of the religious rites. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, but drinking see. was more the sociable thing. I think you
2: would go to church to get baked. <laughs> and like, basically, and the Ellicinian histories, they found traces of ergot, and they, uh, so they, yeah.
0: you go to church. They yeah. love
2: it. You'd say, mum, I'm just going off to church. <laughs> and uh, She'd <laughs> be like, don't be home too late. Yeah, I'll see you in three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: In all sorts of visions, oh, <laughs> visionaries. Yeah. yeah the, the Romans. They had a good man, they had a good. And uh Abby, I'm on about the interview with Megan, Markle, Harry, and Oprah That everybody is keen to watch on the UK TV tonight. Okay, so we
2: need to get on with it. Oh, we're we gonna get on with it then,
0: Scott. Can I share my screen? Well, that's no, fine. We can yeah, all good. We're good to go. Did the you as you as you're doing that, did the Greeks create the sewer system or was that the Romans? Lally, I feel no, like no. It's,
2: what was the question did the did Greeks they have the sewer system.
0: The, the sewer system, is that, I think that's a Roman thing. Yeah. It's a
1: Roman thing. It's the, it's the Roman thing. I mean, they had, uh, you can still to these days yeah. in, you can actually go down into the, they call it the Cloaca Maxima, uh, you know, the, 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 the very great sewer. And it's still like, it's still under, underground in Rome. Like it's thousands of years old, but you can, it's big enough to sail a boat through so the roman sewer systems were pretty pretty phenomenal yeah yeah
0: I what did they? you know look like in a the, in the toilet what do they use you know in the toilet sponge. Uh,
1: they'd use a sponge they'd use a bit of water leave. Oh, a
0: sponge of what a sponge of how would they make a sponge
1: no no because it would they, so, they, they would dive yeah. for sponges you you from from the ocean. get sponges in the mediterranean What?
2: yeah
0: that's amazing yeah, they, yeah.
2: And then you, they'd oh, all, it was public, so they'd sit in a row and they'd talk to each other and stuff. And like, this is <coughs> unlikely suicide ever. I don't believe this, right? But
1: suicide or suicide.
2: Suicide, nice one. You're getting good, <laughs> get the, the puns, getting good at the dad jokes. Right. the puns, right? Yeah, that was- So they, Seneca claims that there was a gladiator who morally objected to fighting in the Coliseum and when no one was looking, he took the sponge which was on a stick in the latrines and shoved it down his own throat and choked himself to death on it. And Seneca says, like, that guy had... Courage. Legend. That he's is a legend. A legend. Like,
1: that is like course, a Baroque... I that think is a Baroque suicide. It seems to
2: me, if this was a case for Poirot, he'd be like, we found this guy in the toilets with a toilet sponge rammed down his throat <laughs> and he's dead. He'd be like, clearly suicide. Like, I don't <laughs> thinking, I don't know if that's suicide, Poirot,
0: uh, oh, it's like someone else. like, oh uh, my right. days, imagine it. Was it? Oh God. See, imagine being a gladiator though. Imagine being in it before going in the arena knowing, oh nah, nah. They must have all like, you know, kicked their pants before going out. Well,
2: like some of them apparently enjoyed it. Like they often, but not always, they fought. They fought with partially blunted weapons, so they they would blunt of the sword, so they could cut you, but they wouldn't be able to stab you. So they because they wanted to see blood, but not for people to die. Because gladiators were worth a lot of money, mm-hmm. and they were massive sex symbols. I think it's Galen that talks a lot mm-hmm. about how. There was a one gladiator that had pus dripping from his eye. He was covered in scars, like he had a ear missing and all that. But he was like surrounded by yeah. Roman noble women that were like his groupies or whatever.
1: The, the death rate was only, was only not more than 10% for uh-huh. gladiators in the arena.
2: Oh, that's it's, not bad. You had a
1: 90% chance of survival. Yeah, that's, that's quite good.
2: Quite yeah. defining, you know?
0: I would do that. I'd do yeah. that for fame. But you know, you know Galen or Galen, whatever his name is? Yeah. I was doing my research on uh, whey protein the other day because we're launching a whey protein supplement that's like irritate, irritant free. He actually used whey protein as a medic, medical medicine like ailment, mm-hmm. Galen did. He was one of the first people to use it as like a like a health supplement.
2: Wow, very uh, cool. He was ahead of his time. I did a lot of interesting things back in the day. Right, will was, we, yeah. we launched our uh, thing. Yeah. Oh, you haven't, Scott, you still haven't given me. Uh... Oh,
0: shit. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too busy talking about gladiators, buddy. Talking about. Like, everybody's,
1: everybody's desperate <laughs> to watch oh, the to watch the, the interview with Oprah.
0: Yeah. This is better than Oprah. It. Yeah, we have to. I guess we have to watch it. Yeah, you have to watch it. This, this is history. This is. Oh, well, we'll see. Oh, it's going to be good news. Now,
1: hasn't the story already been made? Because hasn't it already been aired in the US? Yeah. I think it's
0: already been
2: aired in the US, hasn't it? I was seeing it on Twitter. It was trending on Twitter.
0: <laughs> that's when you know.
2: So, we're going to talk about love and anger and stoicism and stuff. Yes. And this is Lalia. Like,
1: you just love that photo. I love that
2: photo. As you can see, Lalia's a, an android. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: so
2: she's sure. now back at university. She's living the dream of writing a book about ancient and modern Greece and living with Donald, living, living the dream. And that's me. <laughs> like psychotherapist and author of Repute. So we're going to talk about <laughs> love in Stoic philosophy, which is controversial, right? You should be like, well, what has Stoicism got to do with love? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with it. Like, but we're going to see what the Stoics say. And I don't expect everybody to agree with it. It's one of the things, like when we're talking about Socrates, he says things that like, like most people actually disagree with, but somehow you come away with it thinking he did say some kind of interesting stuff though, and it kind of like sticks like, in your brain a bit. And then we're going to talk about anger in Roman classics, which is where like Laoia comes in, like because we're going to talk about Medea, who's this figure in uh, Greek mythology, and uh, a stoic. The Stoics were kind of slightly obsessed with Medea, and uh, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, wrote. An entire Latin version of the original Greek play by Euripides, Euripides. and uh, and then I'm going to talk about a load of practical stuff from Marcus Aurelius about coping with anger. So, ooh, are the, they your gifts? The gifts from the oh, god like of We've got I a, like that. a lot of stuff. So Stoicism, I would argue, actually, weirdly, is a philosophy of love, although that might sound a bit odd. So we're told that Eros, the god of love, was actually the patron god of the Stoic Republic. The Stoics had this utopian text, like they envisaged the ideal society. and Eros was the patron god of it. And Seneca says, no school has more goodness and gentleness. None has more love for human beings, nor more attention to the common good, which is not what people think of probably when they, they think of Stoicism, but in the ancient world. People often thought of stoicism as being this very, um, like, uh, as embodying a, a love, a brotherly love, philanthropic love, um, as we'll see. So this is an article by a scholar called William O. Stevens, and he summarizes, I think reasonably well, the stoic attitude towards love. So this is pretty much, saves us doing the entire presentation almost. So this is what he says in a nutshell. He says... The Stoic loves other people in a very free, giving way. Is it like me? Free love. Yeah. Free love. They actually were totally advocates of free love. Um, side note: the originators of Stoicism, Zeno, Zeno, wanted to abolish the law against adultery, like, and essentially oh. they hated uh, free love.
0: Bring it back. Bring it back. Bring, bring it back.
2: Bring <laughs> back like you know, he wanted he wanted to do away with what. <laughs> so, uh, he thought people should be able to sleep with anyone they love. And uh, the problem in the ancient world with that is the, uh, establishing paternity, right? So then they would say, well, if we didn't have the institution of marriage, like we wouldn't really know who was the father of the children. And Zeno said, well, we should just bring all the children up communally, like the Spartans hmm. did. Oh like, my days. I did not think of that. Like, controversial, like, but that was what they said. So the stoic loves other people in a very free-giving way, this guy says. His love is not at all conditional upon its being reciprocated by the person loved. Now, that's a radical concept.
1: I know all about that, because I love Donald, Uh, and it's just I don't
0: get any of that. Unrequited love. Donald's happy, so stoic.
2: It reminds me of being a parent, actually. So, you know, parental love isn't conditional upon being loved back by your children, arguably. Or is it? Something like that's something that's worth thinking about the stoic does not compromise his own moral integrity or mental serenity in his love for others, nor is his love impaired by his knowledge of the mortality of his loved ones. We're going to come back to that in a bit, but he doesn't impair So Epictetus literally says at one point to his students, if you love someone and it's messing you up, like it's making you really miserable and unhappy, he says, well, then it's not really love at all. Mm. Like it's, it's something else that you're mistaking for love. Like He thinks genuine love, like, uh, love that's in accord with wisdom that's rational as the stoics would put it like, is inherently healthy it benefits you and the other person and if it's not like that if it's damaging you or the other person then it's not really love it's a kind of infatuation and you, should, you shouldn't really call that love mm. um, this guy says Roy or Stephen says rather the stoics love and natural affection are tempered by reason so this might sound odd but for stoics love is completely consistent with reason love is rational And it's in accord with reason and wisdom if you can imagine that and his love and affection serve only to enrich his humanity never to subject him to psychological torment as we said earlier like so love should always be a a healthy thing marcus aurelius at one point says something that sounds kind of christian this is why many christian authors admired marcus aurelius he talks about loving one's enemies and he says it is peculiar to mankind, to love even those who do wrong. And this happens when, if they do wrong, it occurs to you that they are kinsmen, number two, right? And that they do wrong through ignorance and unintentionally, we're going to come back to all of these things at the end of the presentation, and that soon both of you will die, and that above all, that the wrongdoer has done you no harm, for he has not made your character worse than it was before. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on that. There's a lot to discuss in there, but all of those themes we're going to talk about in more detail later. So it's very condensed. There's a whole bunch of stoic principles that he's kind of compressed together there. Like they explain how he thinks rational love functions in accord with clemency or forgiveness. And so, as I said, apart from the relationship dimension of this, this guy was Roman emperor and he was a magistrate. Like and he wrote this on the Roman frontier when he was surrounded by what the Romans called barbarians. He would meet them with him virtually every morning, I would think. And uh, he's talking about the Marcomanni and Quadi and the Sarmatians as enemies that he's in the middle of fighting a war against. And saying it is peculiar to mankind to love even those who do wrong, um, and to remind himself that people that seem like his enemies are actually like brothers and sisters to him in the brotherhood of man. So it's. Many people have read this and, and thought, this sounds like early Christian ethics. It's a remarkable thing for this guy to have written this in private when he's commanding an army of 140,000 men. And nevertheless, this seems to be how he's thinking about the war, which is really a, a stunning thing. Stoicism and Christianity, I guess, is you know, what I've been uh, uh, alluding to. Pierre Hadot, a very eminent French scholar, said it cannot then... He said that loving one's neighbor as oneself is a specifically Christian invention. Rather, it could be maintained that the motivation of Stoic love is the same as that of Christian love. Even the love of one's enemies, as we've just seen, is not lacking in Stoicism. Um, so Stoicism was actually one of the major influences on early Christianity. St. Paul came from Tarsus, which was the, one of the main centers for Stoicism. And he met the Stoics. He mentions them in the Acts of the Apostles like they're literally in there. And uh, many of the church fathers we know had studied stoicism before they converted to Christianity. So there's this kind of stoicism leaves its imprint on. Uh, uh, so when we think of stoicism as being kind of cold and unemotional, that's really a misconception. Nobody thinks of Christianity as being cold and unemotional. Mm. And yet Christianity derived all of this stuff from, from stoicism, arguably controversial. You know, Either it's a coincidence that they say very similar things or it's it's not a constant, in, in and he stole it. <coughs> stole it. <laughs> right. One of the most controversial things that the Stoics say. So I'll turn to Lalia on this one, and it's shock, this is a shocker, right? Actually, I almost think we should have a God trigger on. warning for this. We need, we're going to need a few trigger warnings, right? So we're going to talk about bereavement. We're going to talk about the death of children, like and loved ones, and the stuff that ancient philosophers want to talk, they want to talk about very extreme, very shocking things. So Xenophon, who was a famous Athenian general, he was a friend of Socrates. He wrote a book about Socrates called the memorabilia Socrates. And there's a famous anecdote that uh, Xenophon's son was an officer in the Athenian army, and he, he was killed. And the news was brought to Xenophon. They said, well, you know, I, we've got this bad news, your son has died in battle. And Xenophon said, I knew that my son was mortal. Like, so he'd prepared himself psychologically in advance, partly because his son was a soldier, like he was, like for the day coming when possibly his son would die in battle. And he said, I, I knew that my son was mortal, so it doesn't come as a surprise to me. Epictetus, the most controversial thing in any of the Stoic literature, I'm going to call it a Stoic kiss of death, just to kind of highlight it, because it is in there, and people often pick it out. I'll just tell you what Epictetus says. He says, if you kiss your child or your wife, say that you only kiss things which are mortal and thus you will not be disturbed if either of them dies. Now, I have to say that I think given the context that he means pathologically disturbed because Epictetus says it would be natural to be disturbed about certain forms of loss. But what the Stoics want to avoid is kind of clinical depression. Like being completely overturned, like overwhelmed um, by misfortunes in life, like bereavement. And so I, I want to dwell on this for a moment, because if we yeah. can get past the, the kind of rather the, the coldness of it, the extreme way that he says it, first of all, he's kind of paraphrasing this famous saying about Xenophon, I knew that my son was mortal, Epictetus the same, when you kiss your son, you should think to yourself, like, I'm kissing a mortal. Like, when you kiss your wife, you should think that I'm kissing a mortal. And the Stoics have the saying that we should tell ourselves that they, one of their fundamental views was that we should say that everything is on loan to us from Zeus mm. or on loan from nature. So they think that the, this is the, to get to right to the guts of this really challenging and quite profound idea, but maybe not everyone's cup of tea. The Stoics want us to think that our loved ones are on loan to us temporarily from the universe so that we don't become rigidly attached to them and we're prepared in advance for change Mm. or loss. And so we seize the day, as Lavia said uh, last week. You know, we we make the most of the opportunity that we have with them.
0: (laughs) Donald, this is where stoics get their bad reputation from probably. Like these
2: this, is, this is the most extreme thing I think that mm. they say, but I defend Epictetus in saying elsewhere he he acknowledges that it's natural to be disturbed by loss, and mm. here I think he's really talking that the main target for Stoicism would be more like clinical depression or something like kind of pathological distress. Also, in the ancient world, people are generally more um, desensitized to the loss of children because typically in during the Roman Imperial period you could expect probably half of your children to predecease you, roughly. Mm, yeah, And that yeah. actually came true with Marcus Aurelius, who had 14 children and seven of them died before him. Right. Awesome. So the loss of children was, was, was fairly common and death was more, um, people would die at home rather than in a hospice or something, for example. People slaughtered animals. So death is something that people are much more familiar to and somewhat desensitized to, in a way. Life was more precarious. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. Do you know, Listen, um, yeah. just on that point, just, I, came I came across the TikTok of the other day and it said, like, oh, you should look, you uh, your parents. parents. Oh, I think I'm echoing, by the way. Am I? No, yeah.
1: you're fine.
0: I'm fine. Um, they said, you know, how many times do you, do you see a parent? He's asking a guy. He's like, I don't know. I see my parents twice a year. And he's like, you've only got, like, how many years left to live? And they're like, I don't know, maybe 10. He's like, you've only got to see him 10 more times. If you think about it in numbers, you've only got 10 more times of seeing your parents if you keep seeing them only twice a year. And then that guy was like, oh, shit. Because he just thought, everybody thinks, I'll see him forever. He's never going to stop. But Marcus if you think of it that way. He
2: says, don't, don't live as if you think you've got another 1,000 years to go. Hmm. Right. See, so he, he, he says a lot of things like that. Now, Marcus himself, one of the weird things is in the Roman histories, we tend to get a description of Marcus Aurelius' life but not that many references to his philosophy. But sometimes there, there seem to be references kind of tucked in there, or maybe references you know, just prevailing ideas in Roman culture. This is what the Historia Augusta says about Marcus Aurelius' death. Such love for him, Marcus Aurelius, was manifested on the day of the imperial funeral, his funeral, that none thought that men should lament him, which is surprising since all were sure that he had been lent by the gods and had now returned to them. Now that, I would say, sounds very similar to stuff that Epictetus says. Like, and actually, I don't, we don't know for sure. It may just be that's a description of how people in society generally were talking about it. But given that he's talking about the imperial funeral, where eulogies would have been delivered by Marcus Aurelius, his friends, many of whom were Stoics, I don't think it's impossible that this comment reflects things that were said in the eulogies at Marcus Aurelius' funeral. And this sounds to me very reminiscent of a very familiar Stoic doctrine, the idea that we should view people as mortal, we should literally say that they've been lent to us by the gods and will be returned one day. Like, so I kind of imagined this might have been something that people were saying, partly because they heard it said in the eulogies De- delivered over Marcus Aurelius' remains. Yeah. Um, so that was, having dealt with something controversial, a story technique would be, you know, like, what could you take that literally? And when you kiss someone, like, think to yourself, like, you know, they're on loan to me by nature. Nothing is permanent. Can you love someone, Lalia, mm. and, and without attachment?
1: Well, that's really hard. I mean, it is hard. but then it's two things, loving somebody without attachment uh-huh. and then loving somebody mindful of the fact that you're both mortal.
2: Uh-huh. Um, maybe well, I don't if the same thing. You don't, if you're not mindful of that, is that not a form of self-deception?
1: Yeah, probably is. Yeah.
2: So if you're yeah. being completely honest about it, you you know, you recognize that you really love your wife, but for all you know, maybe you might get divorced one day or people's personalities change over time. Yeah you, know, well, do of, you know do you
1: want to know do you want to know something super cheesy like uh, here's a big share from me but like the first mm-hmm. time i properly fell in love i was i was actually quite i'm 26 anyway i was i was so in love and this person made me so happy and when uh he was a bit welsh actually legend so, You cool. welsh people are very lovable that welsh yeah yeah and and this is genuine thing but like When I was really happy with him, I sometimes used to cry a little bit Uh and I could never like work out why it was I was a little bit sad. And when I examined it, I was like, I love him so much. I realize Uh that like, we're both more, it was like literally a thing of like, we're both mortal. One day I'm not gonna have him. It was like, I I loved him so much that I was aware of the fact that I wasn't gonna have him forever. And it made me sad.
2: This is like Scipio Africanus from conquered Carthage, I know. He How deep Tears. is that, right? How you realize that? that one day Rome is going to fall?
1: So I think you, I think that's like I totally get the Stoic thing of like yeah. loving so much someone so much, you're just like, Ugh, you Maybe,
0: know? maybe you know deep down as well that it was maybe he didn't love you. Much. Did he love you as much as you loved him?
1: Oh no, I think he did. Yeah, I yeah, did. yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that say he could be
0: like he's gonna leave, gonna leave me. <laughs> so no. no, no.
1: I mean, I know what that feels like as well, Scott. Don't
0: <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Was that another Welsh guy causing havoc? causing havoc. So this, it right.
2: Is, right. Well, this is, we're now getting into Lawyer territory. Yeah. We're about to enter. Anger. Lawyer territory. Not, the, not so much the anger. I wouldn't accuse you of that. You're not an angry person. No. But uh, tragedy. Agenie. I like yeah. these posters. We've got a lot of really cool graphics from
1: posters.
2: Nice. Is that like 1930s? That poster. Not
0: sure. when right? it's from actually. Nice. Maybe then, is that Egyptian or is it? Oh, someone gonna kill! Oh my god! I actually, someone's gonna stab someone in the neck.
1: Trigger warning. Trigger, yeah, trigger, warning, trigger, trigger, trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Right. I think that's Medea stabbing her children.
2: She kills her children. Oh my! Right. So it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. She's an extreme example of someone that does something very self-destructive in a rage. Um, so Medea says, "Thus I shall be." Well, do you want to? The story is Medea is a princess. Yeah. Um, she comes from the Black Sea. Comes from the Black Sea. She marries Jason of Jason and the Argonauts fame. Jason. And then they come back to Cora. They end up in Corinth anyway, and. In Greece. Um, and then the king of Corinth basically forces Jason to marry his daughter, like, and to disown Medea. And Medea's going to be sent into exile. So she loses everything, as we'll see in a moment. She's lost her homeland. She's been exiled even from the place that she's in exile in. Like, mm-hmm. she's like an exile twice over, yeah. or three times over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's lost her fortune me, yeah. and she's going to lose her kids because I think Creon wants them to remain with Jason um, so she's kind of she's lost everything and she says in Euripides thus I shall be avenged on Jason who has wronged and insulted me so her husband has gone off with another woman like Judge. and what shall I gain if he is punished thus she, so she's kind of going back and forth in her mind about this how then shall it be done I shall kill my children she's got two sons but I shall punish myself also and what do I care so she's basically saying, I'm so angry, I'm going to kill my own sons to get back at Jason because like, he's gone off with another woman. And even though this really hurts me, I don't care as long as it hurts Jason. So she's mm-hmm. kind of this crazy, extreme bunny boiler kind of example of this. But this is why Greek literature is so great, because it's completely uninhibited in a, sen- in, the, in a sense that they go to this really extreme... Like, and then Medea has been this very compelling figure throughout history um, because she's such an extreme character. Don't you yeah. think do you think?
1: I mean, she's she's partly I mean she's compelling because we at once sympathize with her and are revolted by her. You know, yes. we we can of course we can sympathize with she helped Jason get the golden fleece, she left her family behind in order to be with him, she was an exile then he betrayed her, then she was an exile again. You know, I've just counted five reasons why we should pity her. Yeah. But you know, and then she kills her children and it's like, well, of course that one thing is so massive that it kind of outweighs the, three, the five things that we really feel sorry for her about. But I mean, yes. that's why she's such a problematic character because we, we pity her, but then she does this completely abhorrent act. As you can see,
2: it's a very tragic story.
0: Does she kill herself as well? No. No.
1: She's rescued. No, at
2: well, the end of Euripides' play, she's rescued. Uh-huh. And also in Seneca's. Uh, well, like, uh, yeah, she ascends in a... To, chariot. Yeah. yeah, in a chariot. Yeah.
0: That's mad she didn't kill herself. How can she live with herself doing that?
2: She almost kind of becomes Ooh, look demonic. Look um, oh. So this is what Epictetus says about her. Epictetus says that Medea makes two errors. Uh, And he's really doing a deep dive into her moral psychology. There's a term for you. So he says, so Medea has lost her husband, her home, her status, her wealth, her children. Medea loses everything. Epictetus famously says, some things are up to us and others are not. When we fail to get the things we desire, we naturally feel frustrated and distressed. And the more we demand having things, mm. and the more they deny us, the more frustrated, more crazy and like, the more angry we'll become. So Medea is uh, an exceptionally angry uh, woman. Epictetus therefore says, it was because she could not endure this, not getting the things that she desired, that Medea came to murder her own children. So, in short, Epictetus is saying the root cause of this problem is that Medea will not accept her fate. Like, she, like, resents and she, like, Mm. defies fate. She can't stand, she wants Jason, she wants her wealth, she wants her status, and she can't accept the deprivation of these things. So, the want to say, look, in a parallel universe, there's another version of Medea. Like, that just says, well, I don't really care if Jason goes off with another woman. And I don't really care, like, if I lose my, my kingdom and my wealth. And, you know, like, uh, if Jason brings up the kids, I'm okay with that. And she doesn't go crazy and mother her sons and get consumed by rage and stuff like that. Because she's capable of reconciling herself to this deprivation. Is this
0: real? Is this real? Did this happen? No. Is it, a, is it mythology? Or this, is this did this really
1: happen? Well, I mean... Obviously we've all read stories where this kind of thing actually really happens in real life right? I mean we've all it read stories of this. this. This happened exactly.
0: recently but, in a Netflix documentary of that guy the murdered his daughters to be with the other girl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it
1: the thing is that the sad thing I mean we we think when we when we see it on the stage or we hear Donald talking about the ancient classics we sort of think oh it's so far removed how can anybody do that but unfortunately we know that people go that crazy and they and they do this. So yeah, it's 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 extreme, but
2: it happens. It's a form of, like what Epictetus points out is it's a kind of form of, we all know what it means for people to be self-destructive and to punish themselves. Mm. And in a sense, Medea is doing that. Like she knows that it hurts her to kill her sons, mm-hmm. but there's a bit in Seneca actually, that's really quite profound. And there's a little bit in it where he hints that Medea feels guilty about having previously murdered her. She also murdered her brother. So she's like, kind of <laughs> four. She's done she's, yeah. Yeah, she's four. Yeah. She's done a lot of bad things. So in Seneca, she's tortured by the memory of her crimes in the past. And she wants to punish herself. And so, like this is more relatable in a way. Like she's so tortured by this overwhelming guilt about horrendous things that she's done in the past that she thinks that she deserves to lose her sons. Mm. And so although she thinks this is a terrible thing um, and it's really painful to her, she also wants to hurt herself like, because she feels that she's a bad person and she feels so bad guilty about stuff. So in a very twisted, perverse way, she she feels like she wants to... It's a form of self-harming, mm. like killing mm. her sons. Mm-hmm. Like, it just happened that she's also harming somebody else in the process of doing it. She's pretty messed up. It's pretty pathological stuff, right? Okay. Which is why it's so interesting. Mm. But having said that, Scott, weirdly, as Lalia quite rightly noted, Medea is arguably a, a one, of, like, yeah, one of the most striking examples of an anti-hero. Like she, she's very compelling. And weirdly, even the Stoics, who are very moralistic, love Medea. Like... Not only do they kind of obsess about her and they write a lot about her, Seneca rewrote the entire play in Latin. Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school, wrote a book that goes on about Euripides' play so much that people made fun of him, saying they called his book The, the, uh, the Medea of Chrysippus, and what they meant was that he quoted Euripides so many times that he basically quoted the entire play. Like, they said, okay, we get it. You really like this play by Euripides. The Stoics <laughs> loved this, like, but they, they saw her as somebody who's really messed up, really pathological. The, the Stoics wanted to view, Plato thought we should get rid of the Greek tragedies because they set such a bad example, right? They thought uh, uh, the characters, the protagonists in the Greek tragedies are the authors of their own tragedy. He has Socrates saying, which is true. And Plato's solution to that is basically book burning. Like we should get rid of all these. the stoics said no we should read them but we have to read them with a critical eye and view them almost like their case studies in psychopathology so we should read medea and not agree with her but we should read it and think poor woman how was she driven to this and Mm -hmm. and what's actually going on in her head and treat it like a a psychiatrist would treat a case study almost but Epictetus goes even further than this like and he says um that what she did in killing her sons and everything else was the act of a great spirit. He says someone with a great nature, like hmm. a, a noble individual, a strong, a powerful, like great spirited individual. Uh, mega, mega f- fwez, 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 yeah. fwez. um, big nature, like great nature. And then this is my attempt to kind of paraphrase what the other weird thing he says. Ruin. It, oh,
1: nice. Yeah. Sorry,
2: I didn't read it out. ectosis, psuches, megala, nura, echusis,
1: You're doing a great mixture of modern, modern and modern ancient Greek. Greek.
2: Yeah. Mike, we will do it properly.
1: Okay. estin ectosis, psuches, megala, Nura says. what does that mean uh the ruin of a soul which possesses great now
2: yeah oh, okay so my translation's not too bad <laughs> like and this word that means ruin is also the word that the ancient greeks used for a shipwreck which Ectosis. is an even more evocative mm. way of describing it. so like do you know what it reminds me of when we say something's a train wreck or a car ah, crash a train wreck yeah so yeah, he's yeah. saying my day is a train wreck Like, this is, he's like, this is an effing train wreck, right? Like, not only that, her soul is a train wreck. Um, But nevertheless, it possesses great nerve, great strength of character. And what Epictetus is saying, so she's an anti-hero, as we would put it simply today. So she could almost have been a hero because she has tremendous strength of character and grit and courage, but she doesn't have the wisdom to accept her fate without, resenting it and craving revenge against other people. So Epictetus thinks she has something that resembles tremendous courage, but she doesn't have wisdom and justice in her character. Like, so she's half of a hero. Unfortunately, fortunately that's worse than not having courage at all because it means that she gives her the boldness and recklessness to do really atrocious things. Mm. Like she's a particularly dangerous individual. Um, So nevertheless, there's something admirable about the enormous willpower and strength of character and courage that she has, if only she could direct it towards good. And this is kind of almost what the Socrates and the Stoics thought about the Spartans, funnily enough. So people often think it's odd that they admired Spartan society. But I think the Socrates and the Stoics admired the Spartans for their self-discipline and their courage, but they thought that that should be applied to the pursuit of wisdom and justice, whereas the Spartans applied it to the pursuit of Slavery and uh, conquest. So it's really, what he's saying is that she lacks amor fati. And Epictetus literally says, talking to Medea, he's imagining speaking to her and he says, do not desire the man, Jason, and nothing which you desire will fail to happen. And in a word, desire nothing other than what God wills. And then who shall hinder you and who shall compel you? And so again, he's saying in a parallel universe, there's another version of a story where Medea just goes, meh, whatever. like, And, you know, have Jason. I'm not bothered. I accept the fact that it's not under my control. If she could love Jason and kiss him and say he's immortal, like, one day he'll be gone, and nevertheless I love him while he's with me, mm-hmm. but I'm not attached to him, then she wouldn't have ended up in this train wreck in the first place. Mm. But Epictetus says it's because she's clingy, like she's overly attached, she loves him, like in a very demanding, clingy way, and not in a, a philosophical way um, that uh, Im- accepts uh, the impermanence of things, kind of like when we were talking about impermanence when we discussed Buddhism the other week. And then Epictetus says that she makes a second error. Um, Epi- in Euripides, she says something that the Stoics were kind of obsessed with. At one point, she says, "'Tis true, I know what evil I shall do, but passion overpowers the better counsel.'" So what she's saying is, "'Even though I know what I'm doing is wrong, I can't help it because my anger is overwhelming me.'" And you might say, okay, I get you. Like We say that today. Someone says, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I couldn't help it because I was so angry. And Epictetus gets right to the heart of the cognitive theory of emotion, and he says the most radical thing he could say He says, no, you're wrong. You're mistaken, Medea. We cannot truly believe one course of action is better and yet voluntarily do the opposite. It's not your feelings that are making you do it. Like, it's your belief. You believe that it's better to kill your sons. You believe that getting revenge is more important than the lives of your sons. And he actually says that. He says, your belief... You believe that getting revenge on Jason is more important than sparing the lives of your sons. It's your belief that's guiding your actions. You're making an error of moral judgment. Don't blame it on your feelings. Why like someone could have the same feelings that you've got and they could choose not to act on them because they firmly believe that the consequences would be unethical. Um, so Epictetus says, no, it's your opinions and your opinions are wrong. Like, it's not just feelings, like you're making an error of moral judgment. Like, and someone could maybe have helped you by by questioning that. Like, maybe if there had been someone there that had questioned you more thoroughly, like helped you to, to, to really think things through, perhaps you would have arrived at a different course of action. So he says, Medea killed her sons because she believed that going along with her rage and inflicting revenge on Jason was more important than defying her rage and sparing them. But nevertheless i read this earlier and i thought i've written sympathy for the witch and it sounds a bit misogynistic but medea was literally a witch witch, right so she did black magic and stuff like that i mean pretty hardcore in seneca's version anyway i don't know about Euripides, but in seneca's version he goes into great detail about sort of eye of newton wing of bat kind of stuff that she summons all these monstrous like spirits from hades and it's it's pretty hardcore witchcraft right so, and I love this poster, I think that looks, tells
1: you more about the Romans and it was. The, the, the Romans were quite obsessed with witchcraft.
2: They loved witchcraft. Who yeah, doesn't yeah, love yeah. witchcraft? The Greeks didn't go into it. The, the Greeks didn't. weren't
1: so much into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Romans were pretty obsessed. No one's
2: liked it. Uh, so, Epictetus says, why then are you angry? with the unhappy woman that she has been bewildered about the most important things and has become a viper instead of a human being. So now he says something even more controversial. Having said he also kind of admires her in ways, although he thinks that she's made these two fundamental errors of judgment, now he says we should sympathize with her. Like, he says she was deceived, what else could she do but what appeared right to her, Epictetus says talking to his students about this. He says she's been blinded and maimed in her moral judgment and we should pity medea like we pity people who are blind and lame now epictetus was himself lame like he'd had his leg broken allegedly by his owner while he was a slave and he was left crippled for the, the rest of his life um, so he said he used to say uh, you know being lame is an impediment to my leg but not to my moral judgment so he said you know people may look at me and think i'm a slave and i'm poor like uh, i've got a crippled leg but he said Medea's is much worse off like because it's her mind that's crippled like her faculty of moral judgment and uh, we should feel really sorry for her like rather than we should not make the mistake of being as angry with her as she was with jason otherwise we just kind of descend to her level as it were and so you'll see these themes recurring and what Marcus Aurelius says about how to cope with anger. Which are you? Do you, are you going to remain with us, lawyer, or do you want to make your exit? Maybe I'll make my exit. Go, 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 Save my voice?
1: voice. Yeah. Okay.
2: I've
0: got. I've got a question for you though. Before you leave. Uh, before okay. she, what's the difference between revenge and justice? Uh,
1: well, justice. Um, the. I suppose the Greeks would say that justice is something which is um, imparted by the state and revenge is something which is imparted by the individual. So revenge is, is so when, if you think about the, the play, um, famous play, the Eumenides, um, this is where justice and revenge really come into focus in ancient Greek thought. Um, so it's the last play of the Oresteia, which is the famous story of Agamemnon coming back from Troy. His wife kills him. Um, but then his son, Orestes, gets um, revenge on his father and kills his mother, Clytemnestra. But what happens is that Orestes, the son, having avenged his father, is followed around the world by the three Furies, who were the kind of goddesses, demons of revenge. Um, and this whole story, this whole saga, doesn't come to rest until the final play of the Orestia, It's in three parts it's called the Eumenides, which is named after the Furies, it means the kindly ones. And a court case takes place on the slopes of the Acropolis. Um, and basically that's when in, in Athenian thought, they kind, of, um, they kind of put to bed this whole revenge versus justice thing. They have a lawsuit and they have, um, it's actually a lawsuit of gods that judge on whether Orestes is guilty or not. Um, and having found him not guilty, of killing his mother for various reasons. They then take the Furies, these goddesses of revenge, and they embed her in the side of the Acropolis. And it's almost like revenge is sort of vigilantism, whereas mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. is of the city. So justice is for the city to apportion, whereas revenge is something you do with vendettas, with okay, vigilantism, yeah. with the family. It's it's out of control of the law. Justice is the law. Revenge is sort of, wow. um, you know, um, something which is beyond the law, but we want to keep within the law.
2: I would would add to that, funnily enough, from my perspective in philosophy, Mm. in a sense, this is the central question of Plato's Republic, Mm. the contrast between revenge and justice. Plato's Mm. Republic is about the concept of the kaiosune, like, or justice, like, Mm -hmm. and it begins by one of the interlocutors, one of the people that Socrates is talking to, Uh, Saying Socrates says what is justice and he gives a military definition of justice which was well known Mm. in classical Athens which is that justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies Mm -hmm. i.e helping your military allies Mm -hmm. and inflicting damage on your military enemies Mm -hmm. and he applies that quite generally to life so they've taken this military concept and turned it into a philosophy of life and to cut a long story short Socrates questions this pulls it apart mm-hmm. and implicitly arrives at the conclusion that justice isn't helping your friends and harming your enemies but that it consists in helping your friends and helping your enemies yes yeah. yeah absolutely um, yeah and so ie harming your enemies would be revenge yeah so he eliminates yeah. the concept of revenge from the concept
1: absolutely. Of, of which, which which we have to which is why we have which is why you know in in most legal systems um, even if somebody is guilty, they or, or perceived to be guilty, you can't even say that they're guilty, right? Innocent until proven guilty. You, you mm-hmm. have the right to a legal counsel at all stages or, you know, in, in, in democracies that function um, kind of correctly and according to Greek values. But yeah, I'd say revenge is kind of primitive and, and vigilanteist and from the heart, and justice is in the city. Um, it's in the democracy.
2: Yeah, revenge is about retribution. It's about this idea of somehow getting people by an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the lex talionis, like paying payback. Yeah. Like, um, but arguably the, the idea, the concept of justice is about preventing vice or crime and also rehabilitating people like or restraining them from doing it again in the future. Mm. And actually the, the paradox, which the ancients were very aware of, is that sometimes, it, and very often if you punish people, and inflict revenge on them you make them more likely to commit crimes in the future so there's a sense in which it's quite self-destructive well, this but, is
1: obviously a very this is this is an amazing bit, conversation that could become something a lot bigger but
2: um about modern yeah. society yeah. and about war and even if they don't commit a crime against you like someone else will, their families or their friends will want revenge against you so you, you potentially just create a cycle yeah, yeah, of yeah. violence yeah. like if you indulge in the in the desire for retribution or crime so they, uh, are, there we go. That was an
1: incredibly short answer to the question: Is justice and revenge the same
0: thing? That's <laughs> a good question by Vicky Simpson. I didn't even think of it until she asked. Her. I was like, "Oh my god, I don't even know the answer. What is the difference?" But yeah, that's amazing, question. Vicky.
1: What a great question. Yeah, well, that's
0: that is that is a great
2: question. question. Socrates would have loved that question. Like you asked a question which that Socrates, Plato, yeah, yeah. My, which is the basis of the Republic, like Plato's magnum opus. Like you know, so they're coming up with the right question. Is yeah, awesome, you know, boom,
0: um, boom, here you go. Right, I'm gonna go rest my throat. No problem. Thank you so much again. Thank Bye. Bye. Love it. Thank you. But yes, just, uh, but you, but, it's you. It's Scott. You mean you, nobody. But the thing is, um, revenge. If 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 justice doesn't happen and the state or there's corruption going on, revenge mm-hmm. turns into revolution. And the people who are getting the tough end will all just cause a complete revolution, which is what happens, and then it's even worse.
2: Well, and also I think you so what you saw, maybe, arguably. I'm very interested in this. I won't talk about it too much, actually. So I could talk about this all day, but I just what I would say a plug here, actually. Uh, I wrote an article recently for ABC News in America. Um, I did a lot of podcast for them with a guy called Mick Mulroy, who's a friend of mine. Um, who's previously involved with the US government and and still to some extent. And he's an expert on domestic terrorism. Uh, He's uh, ex-Marine and ex-CIA, and uh, he was a deputy assistant secretary for defense for the Middle East under General Mattis. And so Mick's very interested in Plato's Republic and and, uh, Greek philosophy in general and in how it relates to things like the riots at the US Capitol mm. and this idea that people um, had abandoned enough, didn't even have enough belief in the democratic system or the legal system that they thought there might be a legitimate political or legal means to try and address injustice in society. They thought what they needed to do is break into the Capitol and teach the politicians a lesson like to get revenge on the, what they perceive to be corrupt politicians. Right? And so there's a lot of concern that in society in general. We wrote an article about how Socrates would maybe like, help people to, to question like, whether this is a rational or a productive way of responding to perceived injustice in society. Aren't you potentially just making things worse by acting out your anger in this way? And you're becoming everything you hate. Like, those people uh, rioted at the, the Capitol were driven by a hatred of injustice or perceived injustice. But what they did absolutely embodied injustice. Like, so they became the very thing that they claimed to hate, Mm -hmm. ironically. And that's that's often the case when people get really, really angry. Like, you know, and and often what they do, as in Medea's case, seems like they're just kind of uh, biting off their nose to spite their face. It seems incredibly self-destructive in many cases. So what we're going to do about it, Scott, we're going to need, we're going to need help from the god of therapy. Yeah, we like do. Apollo is the god of therapy in uh, in Greek society. He's the god of many things. He's the god of playing the guitar or the kithara. He's the god of uh, the arts and poetry in general. Uh, he's the god of wrestling and martial arts. But he's also the god of healing, like Apollo. And Marcus Aurelius at one point in the meditation says, I've got nine gifts or 10 gifts from Apollo, 10 gifts from Apollo, uh, one from him and nine from the nine muses that represent the different
0: branches of the arts. Is um, Apollo's temple at Delphi or something? And what, what, what am I connecting there?
2: The temple at Delphi, which is just down the road from where I'm at the moment. Like it's like a couple of hours drive to, uh, towards the Mount Parnassus on the side of Mount Parnassus, there's a a temple in this place called Delphi and it's the temple of Apollo. And it was very important in ancient Greek society, uh, the Pythia, the oracle would give these paradoxical uh, announcements. It's often important in Greek tragedy. So uh, she said that there was no man wiser than Socrates, for example, and Socrates said, well, I don't believe that, that could be true. So he dedicated his life to proving that nobody was wise. And he <laughs> said, uh, you know, it may be that there's no one wiser than me, but that's only because nobody is actually wise. Like, paradoxically, a really roundabout way, like, uh, it came true. Well, I read so, uh,
0: the reason I bring her up is uh, I read in that Celts book, that they actually managed to break the lines and they took the um, the Apollo's temple at Delphi. They took it and uh, off the Romans at one point, or maybe it was maybe in the Romans. That, at one point,
2: yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know remember. what they did, though. Did They, do yeah.
0: they, did, or they just <laughs> had a party. Like. At one point.
2: The thing about temples is that's where people tended to store treasure. Like, they... They had tre- so I mean a bit like the Christian monks having a lot of gold and the Vikings raiding it is much the same and perhaps even more so in ancient Greece and Rome that temples were like almost like banks or safes yeah, like they, yeah. they stored a lot of gold and, and treasure in them so they were obvious candidates for um, people to be to raid it and I guess part of the idea maybe is that temples um, because they were considered sacred that people maybe believed that they were a little bit safer against being looted. Um, So not only would you commit a crime by stealing stuff, you'd be committing a double crime by uh, committing sacrilege. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they were periodically looted and and destroyed, uh, unfortunately. A lot of important things were lost. So Marcus Aurelius says these 10 gifts are like therapy techniques. We would say they're cognitive strategies for coping with anger. And you'll see kind of ways in which they relate to stuff that we've mentioned earlier, like even what Epictetus says about Medea. So number one, he says, first consider how you stand in relation to them, people that are making you angry, and how we were born to help one another, he says. And from a diff- different angle, how I, as emperor, he says, was born to preside over them as the ram over his flock or the bull over his head, how he has a, an obligation to the people he's meant to be looking after. And then go back to first principles, he says, if all things are not mere atoms, nature must be the power that governs the whole And if that be so, lower things exist for the sake of the higher and the higher for one another. But his main point here is this Stoic idea. um, And this is probably the most controversial thing he says there, that the Stoics believe that humans are by nature social creatures. And this is a really old concept in Greek philosophy that goes all the way back to a very famous speech by one of the earliest sophists, a guy called Protagoras, Um, who gave this elaborate, beautiful speech, arguing that, uh, almost in a kind of evolutionary sense, he says, look, tortoises have shells, Um, bears are really big and strong, like rabbits dig warrens and go under the ground, look, birds can fly away, so other creatures have claws and teeth to defend themselves, So he says, nature has given all of these creatures ways to protect themselves, either by using their bodies or their environment. He says, but humans are uniquely vulnerable. He says, humans are, as infants, for a long time, more than other mammals are dependent on the care of their parents. Hmm. And he says, humans, rather than claws or shells or teeth, like, have society to protect them. The gods, he says gave humans communities to band together and protect themselves against other creatures. And uh, he says, in order to have a community, we have implanted within us an innate sense of justice and fairness. And it's by that we have social contracts and the ability to maintain a community with us. If we didn't have justice, we wouldn't have communities. They wouldn't survive. And then we would struggle to survive. We'd be like cavemen or something like that. You know really to flourish as human beings we need to band together and we need some kind of sense of justice in order to have a fair, a fair and equitable society so marcus says this isn't human nature like it's part of our dna in a way and so the goal of stoicism is living in agreement with nature and therefore marcus concludes that we have this moral obligation given to us by nature to get on with one another to live in harmony with other people it's part of what it means to be a human being and we're humaning badly like if we argue and fight and quarrel with our our fellow human beings so the story is what i say we have this really deep seated ingrained moral imperative within us like to try and live in harmony with other people um it's what it means good. to be I love this that's his view. Book. So it's one. He comes back to that again and again in the meditations. He really believes this is very fundamental. Although I think it's the, although it's the most fundamental, the most basic principle he has. It's maybe the one that many modern readers of Marx really find hardest at first to kind of wrap their their heads around. We tend to think of ourselves as more um, individuals and more self centered, um, whereas the Greeks thought, no, we're we're inherently part of a, a community. Well, we-
0: so we, also need, we also need to realise we're, we're happy to take things of other humans who have built technology and electricity and the internet and Zoom we're talking on now. We're all happy to take all our amazing things other people have done, but we're not willing to give away anything, away. we? We're standing on the shoulders of giants.
2: Like, yeah. we, we're using um, even the language that we use is inherited. We would be nothing without language. You wouldn't even be called Scott like you wouldn't have a you wouldn't have a you wouldn't be able to string two sentences together in your mind if it wasn't for the fact that you have a language to do it and and we depend on uh, other people uh, to give us culture and language and that our, our, yeah. our very identity would be inconceivable if it wasn't for the fact that we inherit language and culture from other people and so, so stoics think we come into the world already kind of entangled like with, uh, with other people. And so we need to like live harmoniously, live virtuously, live like, to the best that we can, rather than kind of struggling against that and trying to be in denial of the, these deep bonds that we have with the rest of humanity. So number two, yeah. he says, when you're getting angry with somebody, these are all ways of re- remedies for anger. These are all things he thinks Medea should have done. Um, so we should consider their character as a whole Consider what sort of beings they are at table, and bed or elsewhere. Above all, what compulsions they're subject to because of their opinions and what pride they take in these very acts. And actually Epictetus is doing this to Medea. Like, he thinks of her in a very rounded way. He's able to look at Medea and say, we shouldn't get angry with her because she has strength and virtue within her, although she does this kind of terrible, terrible thing. Um, but also when we understand her story, we kind of understand how she got there. And we should feel pity for her because we should understand that she's morally blinded. She kinda, she's demanding uh, things. She doesn't understand that by placing these rigid demands on external events, she's setting herself up for a kind of neurosis and frustration. So Epictetus kind of wants to say she doesn't know better in a way. She's morally ignorant. Like, and so, you know, we become less angry with people if we can understand where they come from. Now, that's like the saying to understand all is to forgive all. And it might seem controversial, but what I would say is as a counselor and a therapist over the years, I used to work with young offenders, um, for example. Like, I kind of was a young, like, when I was a young guy, I was, I was kind of pretty off the rails and I got into trouble <laughs> with the cops a lot. And uh, when I was a young guy, not a lot of people know this, but I, I was kicked out of school and I was putting a rehabilitation scheme uh, for young offenders. I wasn't one, but I went on a rehabilitation scheme with kids that had been in Boston and stuff. Like, so I was kind of lumped in with all these guys. And, uh, and then I, I guess I kind of turned my life around and stuff. But they, so as a, a counselor, I worked with young offenders and kids that were socially excluded. And some of them did really horrendous things. Some of them bullied other kids, or they did things that were horrible, violent. But I never really felt angry with them because I spoke to them about their lives and I kind of understood how they got to where they were so it doesn't mean that I thought what they did was okay but I kind of understood how what led up to it like and how maybe their parents had influenced them or how maybe they felt like Medea so angry and so beaten down by society that values didn't make any sense to them anymore they thought the world around them, like people storming the capital, they believed that society around them was so corrupt, like that it didn't make sense to, um, to follow the rules anymore. And that's how they, they got where they were uh, in many cases. So, what Epictetus, what Marcus Aurelius is saying here is like when we try to empathize with other people and view them in a more rounded and complete way then we should naturally feel less angry with them. This is a way of moderating our anger. So I found that as a therapist, I didn't really feel anger towards these kids. If I took in isolation the individual things that they would do, maybe it would make me angry. But when I so- pictured their whole personality and their personal history and so on, it kind of watered down my feelings of anger. Like, it
0: made me think, oh, yeah, can I kind of get like, how this happened. Um, That's a frequent... Um... Thing that I've encountered myself as well. When you get into argument with someone, and they'll pick like one thing you've done, and your reply is, "Yeah, I've done this good thing, this good thing, this good thing, this good thing," and you pick that yeah. one bad thing, and then you call me a specific umbrella tomb. and it's like,
2: you that's can see uh, Medea's doing that to Jason. So Jason's marrying this other woman, and Medea hates him now and wants to just punish him as much as possible. But she could have thought, yeah, but like, you know, Jason also used to love me and like, you know, he did many good things as well. Like, so I don't want to punish the guy that's the father of my children. And we had all these years together when we were happy. Like, but she's, we get tunnel vision when we're angry. Like, and we'll just focus Mm. on this one aspect. So she's, she's really focusing on one act that Jason has committed and forgetting about all the good things that he did. And that allows her to go to this extreme, you know, part of Medea's problem is she has this extreme tunnel vision right,
0: that goes hand in hand with her, her rage. And the it's to- a common, the common thing for, like, what guys do to girls, I, I've, I've, like, you know, people say it's like a guy will call a girl like a psycho for, like, one thing she does is, like, you know, maybe she's checking up on name or whatever, and then the, the straightaway label psycho as if, every act he's ever done is a psycho. Do you know what I mean? It's bad.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of labeling, um, you know, people do uh, in society in general. Like it's what we call a thinking error, a cognitive distortion in, in cognitive therapy. Um, so like labeling people in kind of black or white terms, like it's, once you realize that, you see people do it a lot and it seems like the, the, a very simplistic mistake to make um But, you know, we're all capable of doing that when we get very emotional. Like, so people are either, you know, whether demonize them or we idealize them. It's harder to see people in a more yeah, every, good yeah. and bad in everyone. Like, when we see people in a rounded way, there's good and bad in everyone. Our emotions tend to be more balanced and nuanced and less extreme. But it takes more yeah. maturity and more intelligence to see things in a rounded and, and balanced who, way.
0: Who said, was it a stoic that said, um... Oh, if someone says something bad about me, well, they, they don't know enough. They should have said way more bad things yeah, about me. Is. Uh, is I say that ridiculous? well. Like when they say bad things about me, I go, you obviously don't know what you're
2: talking about, right? Because if you did, you would have mentioned all the other things that are wrong with me as well. They would have mentioned all my other vices as well. So like they clearly don't know what they're talking about. Um, so he was kind of making a joke out of it, which like, was, is pretty cool. Um, number three, no person does evil willingly. I remember talking to the US Marines about this and I thought they were like, they, I was kind of like, I had to warn them in advance. I was like, this might seem controversial, but they were cool with it. They were like, it's an interesting idea. This is Socrates through and through, right? So Marcus Aurelius is saying this, he's, he's really quoting Socrates, it's a very famous Socratic paradox. So Marcus Aurelius says, thirdly, consider that if they're acting rightly in what they do, you've got no reason to be annoyed. But if they're acting wrongly, it's plain that they are doing so involuntarily and through ignorance. For as no soul, according to Socrates, is ever willingly deprived of the truth. So neither is it willingly deprived of the capacity to deal with each person as he deserves. At any rate, people are upset if they hear themselves spoken of as unjust, callous, avaricious, or in a word, as people who offend against their neighbors. So what Marcus is saying here is that it... Very often when someone does something and you think it's unjust and you tell them, they'll get annoyed because they don't believe that it is unjust. But yeah. then if they don't believe it's un- what they're doing is unjust, if they think that what they're doing is right, it's not a problem in a sense of them being a bad person. It's a problem of, of them being misguided or ignorant, kind of like you would say of a, a child that makes a mistake. So stoicism is very forgiving in this respect. It thinks people are just making mistakes, like when they do things that are, are bad. As you might say, no, 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 they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing is wrong. No, they knew that you think it's wrong. They don't necessarily agree with you that it's wrong though. Of course, the majority of people that do commit crimes know that everyone else thinks it's wrong. They don't agree with them. They think it's trivial. Yeah. Like, they don't see it as important. And if you do think it's important, and they don't think it's important, then you have to conclude that they are misguided, or somebody is. Either you, it's either you or them, right? Yeah. And uh, if you're the one that's misguided, then you shouldn't be angry with them. But equally, if you think that they are misguided, then you should empathize with them rather than being angry with them. And you should be trying to educate and inform and rehabilitate them rather than get revenge against them. And that's what Marcus is saying here. This is an extraordinary thing for a magistrate to say. And for someone who's in command of 140,000 troops on the Roman frontier, like, to say this yeah. as he's engaged in the middle of a war. Mm. So a very famous Socratic idea. No, no man does evil willingly, because no one uh, who does true, evil really understands that they're doing evil. They Go to the top. Hmm? The, uh, another good example, what I said to the Marines was, look, every genocidal maniac every evil tyrant and a dictator really believes that they're justified in what they're doing and in fact some of the most dangerous people you'll meet in life are the people that really believe that what they're doing is justified
0: that's the problem
2: you know it's the story they
0: tell themselves
2: cognitive yeah it's the story they tell themselves it's their beliefs that are the problem but beliefs can potentially be corrected we should be trying to figure out where they've gone wrong and, and rehabilitate them where possible. Number four, Marcus says, remember that you're not perfect. Scott, believe it or not, you're not oh. perfect. You're not perfect, no. buddy. Like, neither am I. Neither no, Probably I Lally. Lallye yeah. Lallye maybe is. Lallye. But none <laughs> of us are perfect. And this is a, a strange thing to say. Um, I've mentioned to you before that most schools of ancient philosophy were named after their founders. So Pythagoreanism is named after Pythagoras, Epicureanism is named after Epicurus, Platonism is named after Plato. But uh, the Stoics were founded by Zeno, and they didn't name themselves after Zeno. Like, they called themselves after the place they met, because they did not believe that Zeno was perfect. Even the founder of the whole school of Stoicism, they thought, isn't perfectly wise. So he's not a guru. They didn't put him on a pedestal. This is really important to Stoicism. It's not a cult or personality. It's not a religion. It's a philosophy. I love
0: it. I love that. That's my favorite part of it.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, said you guys need to figure this out for yourself. You know, I can tell you what I figured out. Maybe you agree with me. Maybe you don't. But I'm not like some divine guru figure. So Marcus says, fourthly, consider that you, for your own part also, commit many wrongs, Scott, and are just the same as they are even if you do refrain from certain kinds of wrongdoing, you have at least the inclination to commit such wrongs, even if cowardice or concern for your reputation or some other vice of that kind saves you from actually committing them. So this is like many people only refrain from doing bad things because they don't have the opportunity or they're not bold enough to do it, right? You know, I mean, look at Stalin and Hitler and all these tyrants that did horrendous things. But every one of us knows that there are loads, thousands, tens of thousands of other people in the world that would do even worse things if they were given absolute power. Like, I think I've met a few taxi drivers like, <laughs> that would be worse than Hitler,
0: like, worse than Stalin, like if you gave them that much power, right? Well, Look, think of the moral. So Churchill is a controversial character, right? And he at uh, once, one time... Basically killed loads of Indians because he decided that uh, British people needed the food more than the Indians. Took all the food away. They starved to death. Like that's a big, you know, there's a, that's a like, what you do in that position. Obviously, that's terrible to do. You shouldn't really starve someone to death. But then there's stuff like that. People think he's a hero. But then if you look at that incident, he is a, he's a disgusting person.
2: Yeah, like there's good and bad in everybody, and it's difficult to have a balanced view. And then society makes it hard to have a balanced view about people as well. You know, people want us to label in black and white terms. Like, so we have to kind of constantly be mindful of that and struggle against it. So, I mean, how does this apply to Medea? Like, Medea's furious with Jason, but Medea's not perfect herself. Like, and if she really recognized, you know, some of her own vices, maybe she wouldn't have been so angry with Jason. Right, like, so there's, maybe there's a lack of self-awareness there. There's a cliche in therapy we say, when you point the finger at someone else, you, there are three fingers pointing back at you. Like, mm. so when Medea was kind of like angry with Jason, maybe she'd have, she should have looked at herself and thought, you know, maybe in some ways I'm capable of being selfish. Maybe if the tables were turned, potentially she would have gone off with somebody else like under similar circumstances if it was the other way around. You know, or maybe she's guilty of other vices, like So, and maybe Jason isn't all bad. Maybe Medea isn't all good, you know? So we should, Marcus actually says we should stop, pause and ask ourselves whether we are not capable of doing the things that we're angry with other people
0: for. Do you, do you know why I think Marcus is so good to this as well? It's because he had skin in the game in a way. He was on the front line. He saw the death if you remove yourself away and away and away from the actions you do, you become like disconnected. So you can do some really bad shit. You can just say, Yeah, do that. And then that's 200,000 people dead. Do you mean? Yeah. He, he says, he's
2: there. Yeah, he totally has skin in the game. Like, I mean, there are hints in the meditations, even apart from the fact we know he stationed himself in the front line for many years, which not every many Roman emperors wouldn't have done that. They would have just stayed at Rome. But He um, he was there and uh, even appears to have crossed the frontier and gone over into foreign lands, into the Germanic lands. Um, And he, you know, he wouldn't have been in the middle of battle, but he was close to it. There's a bit in the meditations where he just very casually says, you know, sometimes after a battle, you see there's a body lying there and then the head is over there somewhere like several yards away. And how that seems really weird and unnatural, he uses it as a metaphor. And he says that in the same way, when somebody gets angry with another person or they're alienated from another human being, he says uh, he sees this as being as unnatural as a head lying several yards away from the body. But the interesting thing is he just kind of casually uses this as a metaphor, like this is something he's seen just wondering about yeah. and I, you know you know the other day when you saw that head and it was like lying over there and the arms and legs were over there <laughs> like, like there's a little hint in there that he's actually been quite close at least to the aftermath of battle yeah number 5 he says you can't read other people's minds fifthly you cannot even be certain that what other people are, are doing is is wrong um for many actions are undertaken for some ulterior or hidden purpose and as a general rule, you must find out a great deal before you can deliver a properly founded judgment on the action of others. Now here, he sounds like a magistrate. Like, so he's saying, look, you know, like sometimes people do f- things for reasons other than you think. And mm-hmm. it kind of goes back to what we said earlier. There's an overlap between a lot of these. So what Socrates said about no man does evil knowingly, Marcus here is saying, look, when you think someone's doing something out of badness, it might be that what they, th- they think that what they're doing is right. You know, maybe you don't even really understand their motives at all. Like, and often people do horrible things for what seemed to them like good reasons or valid reasons. And if you understood your reason, their reasons, you might think, I don't, it's not that I think you're evil now. I just think you're crazy or you're like really mixed up for thinking that this was a good way of improving society or this was a good way of protecting your family or whatever your motives were. Um, so we'd be more inclined to say you get you need therapy or rehabilitation rather than you need to be punished or anything. Well, they do thing.
0: they do a bad thing to stop an even worse thing happening is another one where they get into that dilemma.
2: Hmm. So in Medea, her her motives are kind of pretty mixed and complex. And like I said, even in Seneca, it's partly that um, she's kind of been talked by Jason into doing these horrendous crimes in the past, like murdering, dismembering her brother. And uh, she's partly tortured by that. I mean, in a way, Medea almost seems like she's got PTSD. Like, you know, she has what we would call moral, she, what she describes is similar to what psychologists now call moral injury. So moral injury is when someone, and it, it's often in the military, does something that, like they, they kill an innocent person, for example, or they do something that that racks their conscience afterwards. And then that becomes a kind of trauma to them. It's a sort of moral trauma. Um, And Medea has this kind of moral trauma. Like she does to help Jason uh, escape, like she kills her own brother. And then she's traumatized by this and she feels that she needs to punish herself. So when we kind of understand this really messed up perverse kind of twisted pathology that she's got it's almost like we think you need therapy rather than you know like you need to to be punished for what you've done so Marcus is saying here look it's hard to read other people's minds and to be certain what their motives are and the motives are often more complex more subtle than we assume we call this mind reading in cognitive therapy because people do it a lot when people are angry or upset they often jump prematurely to conclusions about what other people are, are thinking so number six, he says that we should remember life is transient. When you're annoyed beyond measure and losing all patience, remember that human life lasts but a moment. And in a short while we'll all have been laid to rest. Scott, we're all gonna be toast. Like we are and we are. like, you know, the the sands of time are running low. And uh as Iron Maiden say. So <laughs> they uh in Medea's case, I mean, again, she's so angry with Jason because he's gone with this other woman. But if she had this broader perspective and she thought "Look, we're all going to be toast soon anyway, like, you know, life, is it worth getting, it, that just takes the edge off it. It's kind of like saying, is it worth it? Is it worth getting that angry with Jason? Given that Jason goes off on another woman, before you know it, like, you know, they'll be old and dead, you know, like, so will you. Like, you know, this is just a blip in the history of the universe. Like, everything is temporary. Like, so this thing that you're getting really, really angry about is transient. Like, is it worth, therefore, getting that angry about it? It's, again, this tunnel vision. Like, it feels like you're getting angry about something that's all-important. Like, but when you view it as transient, it seems less all-important sometimes.
0: I had an example of that happen. Uh, um Saturday and I was, saying, I was reading that book, the Oxford the, the Oxford Press Version, and the author spoke about the Romans, the barbarians, the Irish, the Scottish. When it came to the Welsh, he said that the Welsh teaching their uh, kids Welsh was against human rights. I was like, you just mentioned the Romans, the barbarians, the Scots and the Irish said nothing about that. But when it comes to Wales and the Welsh people, you said we're going against um, you know like human rights I was like I'm going to email him I'm going to email him and then I was like oh, I'm going to email him I'm going to email him and, I did, and then in the end I was like what's the point Like, what is? The, what am I going to get with emailing this guy it's
2: not worth it buddy
0: it's not worth it what's the point like leave it there it. right so you kind of you this emails stuff? for your hmm? books have you had emails from your books someone like Donald what you said yeah. yes yes <laughs> <laughs> i I love receiving
2: them like uh and messages and stuff like people email me literally almost every day um not all (laughs) kind of like arguing with me You mean actually 90 percent of them are really nice right like i get a lot of really nice emails um but then like occasionally i'll get people kind of like arguing with me uh about stuff like i'm kind of used to it now though yeah nice yeah, I'll do it next. So, number seven, and this is the famous Stoic maxim, and this this quote is the basis of cognitive therapy, all cognitive behavioral therapy. Seventhly, that as Epictetus had said, uh, again, this is Marcus's voice, it's not people's actions that trouble us for those that are for their own ruling centers, that's their business, but the opinions that we form about those actions. So eliminate your judgment that this or that is of harm to you, Make up your mind to discard that opinion and your anger will be at an end. And how are you to do this? By reflecting that wrong done to you by another is nothing shameful to yourself. For unless action of which one should be ashamed is the only true evil, it would follow that you too must commit many wrongs and become a brigand and one who will stop at nothing. So what he's saying is here basically that it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. And this is really the Stoics' fundamental issue with tragedy. Like, they say, look, Medea is only really angry with Jason because she believes that it's unacceptable for him to go with this other woman. But she could have viewed it differently. Like, there's 101 other stories that she could told herself about the same situation. Like, she could have said, well, it just proves that he never really loved me in the first place anyway, and I'm better off without him. Could have been another, you know, in which case, she would have felt relieved maybe rather than angry. So, you know, like, this is the, she's picked a particularly anger-provoking way of interpreting the situation. Um, And Epictetus and Marcus are saying that she reminded herself, it's her own way of looking at it. It's her own value judgments. It's her own beliefs that are really making her angry. It's not Jason that's making her angry. Like, it's her beliefs about Jason. It's her opinions about it that are making her angry. She's doing it to herself basically. The epic data said everything has two handles, right? A good handle and a shitty handle, right? But most people pick things up with a <laughs> shitty handle, right? And the, the stoics say we need to learn to pick things up with a good handle. So there's like a good and a bad way of looking at any situation, a good, bad way of interpreting it, good and bad perspective, one that's unworkable, um, one that's more constructive, rational, and helpful, I told my little girl that. I don't think she was ready for the metaphor yet because she was only about eight or nine. I said, uh, I said, babe, did you know that there was this philosopher a long time ago? He said, everything has two handles, a good handle and a bad handle. And she said, that's not true, daddy. Like, she was taking it a bit literally.
0: Scott, like, <laughs> two handles. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Well, what would you say in this regards? You're saying now, no, like, look, it's your fault for your beliefs about this. I'm, I'm that woman, the crazy one saying, like, the one that's going to kill her kids. I'm like, I'm, this is my wrong belief. Have you seen what's happened to me? All this has happened to me. How can you say it's my belief, Donald? You nutter. This actually happened to me. How can you say it's my belief that's a problem? Do you know what I mean? It's like,
2: ooh. Because the same one. thing, well, the first thing the Stoics and Socrates say is, is it conceivable that the same thing could happen to someone else and they would respond differently? So does everyone feel the same way? So, And they would also say, look, the things that have happened to you have happened to other people in the past. You're not the only person that's ever been exiled. You're not the only woman that's ever been jilted by her husband. And does every exile, like, does every jilted lover murder their kids? No, only Medea (laughs) does, right? Because you're picking it up by the shitty handle, Medea. Mm. Like, you know, other people have found ways... So, as uh, Xenophon lost his son, he said I already knew that he was mortal. Like, he picks it up with a good handle. That's his way of dealing with it, processing it. Like, he's like, I knew in advance he was doing a dangerous job, so I was prepared for the fact that one day I might get this news. Right? So he's If you, said that, today,
0: if you uh-huh. said that today, you would get grilled in the media. Imagine that, Kimber, Scott, your son's dead. I knew he's human. <laughs> I would literally get... Yeah, people would attack you, wouldn't they? That's because mad. everything
2: like, everything today gets quoted out of context. Like it's yeah. like people make a kind of, you know, like that's the game that people play. So in, in ancient philosophy, you know, you look at things that people say and then you try to understand why they said them. Like what it means, what the wider context is, right? And then there's usually a rationale for it. But that's why it makes us all stupider. Like if we take everything at the surface level. Like, and we quote it out of context without understanding why it was said or, or what else was said before and after it. Like, we live in a, a world of sound bites, we oversimplify everything. So, yeah, the, the other thing the Stoics say, and boy, does this apply to Medea. Um, I said, this is another really famous Stoic slogan, and actually, this applies at two levels. So, anger does us more harm than the things that we're angry about. So eighthly, that the anger and distress that we feel at such behavior brings us more suffering than the very things that give rise to that anger and distress. So that's true in a trivial sense, and then in a much more philosophical sense. So Epictetus or Marcus would look at Medea and say, you know, your anger is actually doing you a lot more harm than the thing. I mean, so what? Jason's gone off another woman. women. Like, that in itself, you know, it's not the end of the world. You're the consequences of your anger are far more catastrophic than the thing that you're angry about. Like, I mean, what you've done is devastating. By the way, she did a lot of other bad things as well. She burned the city down as well. Oh, mate, you're, you're literally omitting <laughs> all I've of these.
0: Another. Oh, no, yeah. tell us everything she's done. You're, you're like, oh, yeah, and she killed her brother. Oh, and she burned the city down.
2: Burned the city down. I forgot to mention that. That didn't seem important at the time, Scott.
0: Oh like, no, maybe not. It's,
2: it's like my mind. Like, she also burns yeah. the city down of Corinth. Um, <laughs> like, so I'm sure there's probably other things as well. But think, oh, she poisons. yeah, she does. I think she also murders Jason and his bride. She poisons them. Like, that also seemed yeah. trivial at the time. I was like, you know, she mainly murders the kids. She also murders two other people and burns the city down. So it's like uh, it's like that meme of Elmo or whatever, you know, like like everything <laughs> <laughs> just Carnage, right? Medea's creative because she goes to the extreme. That's why it's so compelling. Like you kind of think you don't get stories like this anymore. Like, she's like don't.
0: doesn't do things by halves, right? Nah, no, fair play. Burning the city is a big, big, big a accomplishment. Golf,
2: like you burn the whole place down, right? Just because this guy, just because my husband's dumped me. Like <laughs> there's more there's more to it than that. Like, but still, despite all the things that happened to her, it doesn't justify burning the city down and murdering our kids. Yeah. Like, so at a a practical, a physical level, um, she's done far more damage than the thing that she was angry about. But also Epictetus would say, look, exile, losing your husband, don't really harm you in a sense. Like, they're external things. Like, to someone else, those things might be trivial. Um, But your anger destroys your character. This is why Epictetus... Again, you might say when Epictetus says she turns into a viper, maybe that sounds a little bit misogynistic, unless you know that he says the same thing about everybody, right? Hmm. So Epictetus says, because reason is what makes us distinctly human, um, when we abandon reason and give in to anger, he says that we literally become less human in a way. Like, literally, you're less human now when you're acting in accord with anger, because you've jettisoned reason, and it's reason that gives us humanity. And so he says, literally, she's degraded herself, or a man would in the same situation, like, to the level of being like of like an animal. Like, she's not thinking rationally about what she's doing. She's maimed or blinded um, herself. No, no, Unint- no. But he also thinks she's done this unintentionally. She doesn't realize that she's doing it. No. Um, so it's voluntary. In a sense, but in another sense, it's involuntary because she doesn't have insight into the fact that she's doing it.
0: So, you can, you can, she's harmed her character. Um, sorry, yeah, you can. I was gonna say, you can add the third biological layer that the stress, stressing or getting angry over something is that that response is actually more harmful than the stressor itself. Give you yourself so an ulcer. Yeah, basically. So, she's given it, she probably had ulcers, no doubt. Oh, no, she no. must
2: have. She must have give everyone else an ulcer. <laughs> uh, give them blisters by setting fire to the city.
0: <laughs> Number nine,
2: to. kindness is the antidote to anger. So he said, and "This is again contentious, but the Stoics say, look, another therapy. We do in modern psychotherapy. We there are several kind of basic strategies that we might employ, and one very old behavior therapy." strategy is to do the opposite of the thing that you want to get rid of. And this is what the Stoics are doing here. So they say, well, what's the opposite of anger? And they say, well, the opposite of anger would be kindness. And they, they mean this technically. So they say, they say anger is the desire for revenge, or they define anger, at least a certain type of anger. Certainly Medea's anger is the desire to harm other people because you perceive them as having acted unjustly Right, so Medea fits that perfectly. She perceives Jason as having acted unjustly and so she has this overwhelming desire to harm him uh, and the other people involved. And so the Stoics say, well, what would be the complete opposite of that? It would be the desire to help other people by reforming or educating them. So they think we should repay anger with kindness. So rather than trying to punish people, we get in a, a spiral of revenge by doing that. We have to break it by trying to re-educate and reform other people. Like it's the only way we can get out of this kind of cycle. He says, ninth, that kindness is invincible if it's sincere and not hypocritical, or a mere facade. So he says, we can replace anger with kindness, but it has to be genuine kindness. We have to genuinely want to help the person that's angry with us and, the, and with whom we're angry. Um, so. For what can be the most insulting? What can the most insulting of people do to you if you're consistently kind to him? And when the occasion allows, gently advise him and quietly put him in the proper course at the very time when he's attempting to do you a mischief. So Marcus doesn't mean invincible in the sense that if you're kind to someone, of course, they can just tell you to F off. You can't control them. Like the Stoics are very clear that some things are up to us and others are not. Other people aren't up to you. Medea doesn't control Jason. Jason doesn't control Medea, but kindness is invincible in the sense that nobody can stop you from being kind if you choose to be so. It's a choice. It's an attitude that you can adopt. No one can take it away from you. It's entirely within your sphere of control, the decision to exhibit kindness. And so there's an example. Marcus gives an example of this. So he imagines talking to someone that he describes as his son. Now, It's tempting to wonder if this is Commodus, who would have been maybe 14 at the time that Marcus wrote this. So Marcus gives this little example. He says, no, my son, we were born for something other than this. It is not I who am harmed. It is you, my son, who are causing harm to yourself. So he says if if this person was angry with him, he imagines that he'd have this conversation with him. And interestingly, those are two of the 10 remedies that he mentioned earlier. So he imagines talking to somebody that's angry with him, he's having a quarrel with somebody, and what he does is bring into play two of those remedies. So we were born for something other than this is the first one. We were born to help one another. And you're just harming yourself more than you're harming me, Is anger does us more harm than the things we're angry about. Interestingly, see so he wants to reform and educate the person that's angry with him. Maybe it was Commodus and show him tactfully in general terms that this is so, and that not even bees behave in such a fashion, nor any other creature of a gregarious nature. So he wants to say, look, even animals try to live in communities and work along with each other. And humans are much more sophisticated than that. So it's against our nature, like to turn on each other. We should be trying to resolve our conflicts and work as a team, we're born to live in communities and get along with one another but you must do so in no sarcastic or reproachful spirit but affectionately so notice he says if you're going to try and educate someone and reform them you have to do it sensitively and affectionately and with a heart free from rancor and not as if you were lecturing him like a schoolmaster or trying to impress bystanders but as one person to another even the fellow should happen to be present so he's thinking very carefully about the way that he does this, the tone of voice that he does it in. You know, it's interesting just that he puts this much effort into imagining how he's going to communicate some, with somebody that's having a quarrel with him. And then he says, the tenth and final gift, and if you will accept this tenth gift from Apollo, the leader of the muses, namely that it is sheer madness to expect the bad to do no wrong, for that is to wish for the impossible but to allow that they should do wrong to others, yet demand that they should do no wrong to you yourself is senseless and tyrannical. So this is this idea of Stoics that uh, it's inevitable that people are going to do vicious things. And this way, in Medea's case, this would be rather, when people are angry, they often act as if they're shocked. They say, I can't believe it. I can't believe Jason's done this to me. Like Whereas what she could have said is shit happens. Like. You know, people are unfaithful, like they vacillate, you know, marriages break up. It happens to other people. I shouldn't be shocked if it happens to me. And so this is like the stoic idea of that we should be ready for misfortune because misfortunes befall other people. Like, so they're not shocking. Like we know that marriages break up. So why should we be shocked when ours break? Why shouldn't we be ready for it? Like, and you know, there are good and bad people in the world. And everybody has a certain degree of folly and vice in them. So why should we be surprised if even the people that we love can sometimes do things that seem foolish or vicious in our eyes? Because like, we already know that all humans are fallible. So at the very least, we shouldn't be shocked by it. And the Stoics think we only ever get really, really angry when we act as if we're surprised. And if you take away that edge of shock or surprise, Then our anger will be moderated to some extent it won't be as severe and so Medea is only as furiously angry as she could be because she just finds it inconceivable that this could have happened you know whereas actually from an outside point of view it's perfectly conceivable like Jason was fallible like he was tempted to be unfaithful to her you know loads of people have done that throughout history Like, it's not a shocking or inconceivable thing. So, with that, Scott, I conclude. Like, this is like my case for the case study of Medea. And uh, I hopefully, you know, I don't expect people to agree with everything I've said about love or everything that I've said about anger, but I hope it's given them food for thought because there's a lot of juicy ideas in there. For you know, and even if they just kind of agree with one or two of them or they get them thinking, I think that's really the main thing. I just want to stimulate discussion and get people sure. to think about these things.
0: Question coming in for you Um, what about trusting someone? Always a bad idea, like so. But, like Can we can we live a life and not for trusting people? Like, is that a good life? Uh, you know,
2: actually, what I say, I'm joking, like, but. <laughs> Trust shouldn't be all or nothing. Um, we should trust people to some degree. And of course, because if you don't trust anybody, that's pathological, right? If you never trusted anybody over anything, like, uh, you know, you wouldn't trust any experts, you don't trust any politicians, you don't trust the police, you don't trust anyone, you, you, that, that's a road to madness. But equally, if you're gullible and trust everybody, even untrustworthy people, that's a big mistake as well. So the simple answer to it is, you're going to have to depend on your judgment. Mm. Like many things in life, there's not a hard and fast rule. Like, should you trust people? It's not a yes or no answer. You should trust some people some of the time about some things. How do I know when? You're going to have to use your judgment. How do you know you're, like, if you can use your judgment? You look at different types of evidence. You look at someone's behavior. like, And you don't trust people more than you need to trust them in certain situations. I mean, you know, you learn from your mistakes over time uh, as well. But, uh, and you judge what the stakes are. Like, should you trust someone, you know, about whether they're going to share their candy with you? Well, maybe it's not really that big a deal, right? right? You have to stress about it. Should you trust someone if you're going into a business partnership with them? Maybe you need to be more careful and scrutinize the evidence more cautiously because the stakes are much higher. Like, but this is true. You know, I would say if that sounds like a non-answer in a way, I think the real challenge in life is that we're tempted to look for cut and dried yes or no answers. Like it's it's laziness or it's it's easier when we're under stress and it's hard to think things through on a case-by-case basis and exercise judgment that requires time and effort. Like, and so when we're upset, we don't want to do it, but really, You know the the most helpful like thing in life is to to learn to have the patience to weigh things up on an individual basis and think can i actually trust this guy do i need to be less trusting in this situation can I afford to be more trusting in that situation
0: yeah and then in the in regards to the regain of trust another question is the same thing is like to learn from your previous experience and make a better judgment really
2: I look back on life and you kind of think, here's a good one, Scott. I don't know. Maybe this is different for different people, I suppose. But I quite, I, once you hit 40, I think you have a moral obligation to look back on your life and learn stuff from it. This is my little rule of thumb. Maybe before that. But so I always think, once you hit 40, you don't have any excuses. Like, you should look back on your life. So you can look back at that point and think, in the past, when you lent money to people or other things, like, what percentage of the time did you get that back? Like, and <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> like, but so when next time someone says, Scott, could you lend me 100 quid? Like, you might think, well, let me just review my track record with lending money to people and how many times I actually got it back. Like, you know, yeah. but you could learn a lot from your experience in that way.
0: Yeah, it's obviously an individual. Now. It depends what type of person you want to be as well. Like, A lot of you you see a lot of this where, like, guys and girls will be like, No, I can't trust someone. This one person cheated on me. So, therefore, I'm never opening up to anyone ever again. It's like, Then nobody will ever trust you. Yeah. You have to open up, you know, two way street. Yeah. You have
2: to trust people to some extent in order to have a relationship. It's almost like a social contract. It's a bond that society is based on and a relationship is based on. has to be a degree of trust in a relationship I, as a counselor a therapist one of the things i've seen is what you know you mentioned earlier people i think checking messages and kind of being suspicious and jealous and you know like that's a surefire way to destroy any relationship um i've worked with many clients that, that do stuff like that and uh drives them crazy I, and then it, it really undermines their the relationship you know there has to be a degree of trust but, you know, at the same time, you know, you have to avoid gullibility. So there's a kind of balancing act, right? But if you can't trust someone, if you can't develop trust in someone, at least to some extent, then you, do you really have a relationship at all?
0: Yeah, what is it? Like, what is it if you don't have trust? What are you doing? Yeah. We just have a chat and then, like, not believe in anything they say and then and telling you girl mates so I saw, like... How could you ever expect anyone to trust you if you don't trust them? Yeah.
2: It's that's, that's it's it available. Don't rush mm. into trusting people prematurely like it's okay to kind of sometimes rethink it like review it like based on what's happening around you like the evidence um, you've got to retain your objectivity somehow. Like, it's difficult when you're in love like you don't think rationally like but the Stoics want us to love wisely like to retain a certain amount of objectivity. And they think that the way to do that, to to kind of avoid being swept away and hang on to our objectivity, is the kiss of death basically, is to kind of think, maybe not literally, but to, to think, you know, this is temporary. So I'm gonna like make the best of it, you know, while I can for however long it lasts. Like, and they think viewing things in that way helps us to retain a certain degree of detachment and objectivity. But other people, romantics would say, that's not love. Like you have to, love requires a certain amount of craziness or passion. Like, and I don't know the answer to that. I think, um, I probably side with the Stoics and Socrates more that love sh- should be a bit more detached and more rational in order for it to be healthy. But I know for other people, they, the idea is so ingrained that love is crazy, um, and irrational that that, uh, you know, they would question and even those times, possible. For those to, people claim
0: attachment. Am I echoing? No, I was just talking over you. <laughs> no, I can hear myself. Can you? I, I don't know. You're on. not echoing for me, buddy. No. I swear I'm not on any drugs. Voices in, the the voice thing, is in your head, Scott. Basically, yeah. Um, yeah, like you said there. So, you know, even the people that have that fiery love where they're completely in love, crazy, did nice. it last? Did that last forever? Did that feeling. No, it, it really it doesn't. So they're clinging on to this. It's like clinging on to anger in a way, isn't it? It's clinging on to such an intense, one yeah. kind of self-emotion.
2: And is that you could call it something else? You could say is that love or is it infatuation? Is it you know love or is it kind of like is it neediness or lust or desire? Like you know maybe it's something else. The Stoics would say it's not love, like you know, because it's it's kind of blind. You know, people say love is blind. The Stoics would say, no, actually, that's not love then. You know, love is enlightened and rational and wise and it understands. And, you know, I think there is a sense in in which if you lose objectivity, then maybe you're not really loving the person at all. I'll give you a good example of this. And I know, I mean, I hope people can find this relatable. Again, I don't expect everyone to agree with me, but hopefully it's food for thought. If you love someone in that kind of infatuated way, you'll tend to idealize them, right? So it's more like you're falling in love with a projection, like you're falling in love with kind of what you want the other person to be rather than maybe works and all looking of reality, right? Mm. So how can that really be love when it's not actually aimed at the real person? It's like a cardboard cut out of them that you have in your mind It's an ideal. How can that actually be love of the other person if it's not even directed at the real person? It's directed at a kind of abstraction or an ideal. So that's my view about it. I think if you want to really love someone, you have to love them, works and all. And if you do that in a balanced way, it's less, it's going to be more detached and it's not going to be that kind of infatuation that people describe. But I think it's we live in a society where love is idealized, which it wasn't in the past. And, uh, you know, we have rom coms and romantic dramas and things like that that, that kind of, portray love as being this, this total infatuation, which
0: is, is probably quite toxic. Um, Very toxic. But that's the normal, that's the norm, now. That's the normal love. Like, we've grown up with TV I can't show. can't live and without you, and you, Scott. Oh, please. I, I don't <laughs> want you to be able to live unless you can't live without me, Donald. But I it's also telling.
2: Like, it's, people don't want to be loved by somebody who's dependent on
0: them. Like, or if they do, that's not really love, like on their part either, right? Like, oh, they want a lot of people want it, don't they? They want they you want, to love them so much that your life is them. Like, it's they weird. Think they
2: want it. Do they really want it? Like, mm, yeah. you know, that's kind of almost sadomasochistic, right? Is it, you know, is that really love at all, or is it something? Is it something else? But for me, for many people, it's kind of like that kind of attachment and, and dependence is actually, you know, kind of repellent like it's uh, it's not attractive like although some people think they can kind of use it like you know they like people to be dependent on them maybe they can exploit it take advantage of it like you're leaving yourself wide open to be exploited like this is another infatuation
0: the worst type of love is like the love of a couple creating this perfect image of themselves for social media so the images they created to themselves Uh, and they put it on social media that is the love. There, you know, they think they got. They put it out in the world They get like likes and comments and friends, and they, they will live for that. Even if the reality is arguments, they don't even talk to each other. They just like ah. Oh. I've got know another, so many- got another
2: a bombshell for you, Scott. Like I mean, this is a, this is a simple one, right? They, they, everyone knows this already, right? But this when you throw, I have a lot of these covers. I love talking about love. It's like it's a great. It's a cool subject. It's one of my favorite subjects, right? and uh, we talked about it a little bit today alongside anger but there's many other things we could say about it and they're all kind of unanswerable questions but they're good questions this is how socrates used to talk about it. socrates asked uh, in the karmades he says do uh, does like attract like or do opposites attract or are we attracted by someone that we perceive as offering a remedy for weaknesses or wounds that we have and in that case what happens when those wounds are healed and we no longer need the dilem- remedies, does that mean that we cease to love them? Like once we've benefited from them, you know. So he has all these interesting questions about the nature of love. That would be more like dependence, I guess, in a in a sense. But here's one that is touched on by the ancient philosophers:
0: Can you love somebody if you don't love yourself? Hmm. I don't think. I don't think you can love them in a healthy way if you don't love love yourself? Because then you you basically start relying on them for your love, self-love. It becomes dependence very easily. Like, you know, and if you make your
2: self-love conditional on love and approval from other people, like, then that's also quite toxic. So you have to learn, I think, independently to love yourself. Like, ironically, you have to learn not to need other people in order to you know be genuinely uh lovable uh that's i think you know you, you need you need independence like you know to be attractive uh i think um that's your number one it, um, that is going out to the world self-love we should run a course we should design a course on
0: self-love the science of self-love like well it's, definitely, it's definitely picking up because you know even international women's day today, day being like you know, love yourself, do something that loves yourself, all you need is yourself, you don't need no man, and there's a, there's a, there is a there's there is a a massive truth in that, like, you don't need someone else, but how can you break through to people? I think it's very, like, a lot of people say it, but then they don't mean it, they think they need someone else to make their life a whole, like, two people love and all that stuff, but but, you yeah, like, make, it's a paradox. Make, you,
2: need to do it for you need to make yourself whole, like, you know, otherwise it turns into neediness and
0: dependency, right? Rather than like a kind of healthy love. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we definitely should do more. I think, see what people say about the love things. I think, you know, obviously doing health and fitness is great and all that, but everybody's still a human being listening. So everybody still has these things. I'll tell you a shortcut,
2: right? I think um, one of the things that helped me most in life is is uh, having a child, like having a, a wee girl. Like, because it gives me a certain amount of objectivity thinking about well, what does it mean to love someone else as a parent. Like, for example, I said earlier, quite I kind of glossed over this: the idea about that uh, does it depend on reciprocal love? Well, that doesn't really work that well if you're a parent, because sometimes your kids are going to get annoyed with you and they'll do things that are. But does that mean you don't love them anymore? So, if you're going to genuinely be good uh, loving your kids as a parent, it needs to be in a sense unconditional like it can't be on and off and up and down like because kids need your love the most when they're kind of being unlovable you know like when they're having a temper tantrum like or when they're being a bit obnoxious or whatever like that's kind of when they actually need you like to exhibit parental love towards them and I think some people like bad parenting would be when the kids are misbehaving the parents are like well don't love you anymore like and it switches off and then that makes everything a hundred times worse like for everybody, but uh, I think the thing that, that that helps you is encourage. You know, this is a, a controversial suggestion. Why, like if people think, how can I attain independence in a relationship and detachment? How can I learn to love myself rather unconditionally, rather than loving myself in a way that's conditional on approval of others? I'm going to make a controversial suggestion, Scott. I think the roundabout way to do that is to encourage your partner's independence. Like, So I think like the way to do that is to encourage your partner to be more self-sufficient, like, to make your partner stronger and more independent, Like and discourage them from being dependent on you for approval. Like, and I think if you do that for them, then you'll be more capable of doing it for yourself, and they'll be more capable of encouraging you to be loving in a non-attached independent way but that requires a certain amount of courage like and confidence in a relationship like Mm. you know if you build someone up and boost their ego and make them feel strong and confident how do you know they're not going to leave you like you have to be confident enough to think like unconditionally you want to build up and strengthen your partner and i say that because in many, many relationships, you hear about people doing the opposite. They, they, you know, they bring their partners down and make them weaker. Do you know, in, in relationships, um, there's a very simple question I ask people in therapy about their relationships. And often, simplest questions are the, the powerful ones. It's asking the unaskable question, right? About when people are troubled by a relationship, this is often all they need to ask themselves say does this relationship make you stronger or does it make you weaker Hmm. and in many relationships people go well like to be honest i can't really here's a clue if you're in therapy in the first place like you know not always but if you're in therapy because of your relationship kind of by definition your relationship is making you weaker like often a
0: question while
2: you're in therapy discussing it right so yeah. what sort of relationship makes you weaker? Bad relationship, like toxic <laughs> yes. relationship, you know? It's not a good one. Yeah. Shouldn't relationships make you stronger? Like, and are you making the other person in the relationship stronger or weaker? That's a good. Like, That's a good you know, That's a good ideally, but really in a good, healthy relationship, uh,
0: you know, it should make both partners stronger. Good way of looking at that. Cause if, what if the other person making them weaker? you become
2: stronger, you become more independent you become less dependent on the other person then you might fly away so Mm. it requires if you're going to make the other person stronger it requires not being clingy like being less attached to them, but if you make them stronger they'll make you stronger
0: yeah, and if they run away from you at the end and they like got their own independence or they just feel like whatever, happy days whatever, I mean that's easy said and done isn't it, but yeah, you see all the people who are clingy, like, it's like, what, what, why? Stop clinging, making people, like, reliant on you. It's weird. If, if you, you love, love someone, set them free. Huh? Yeah, that's the one. That's the yeah. famous one. And if you love them, set them free, they'll come back. <laughs> but maybe. Unless you're really clingy. Some of the comments here. Just pretty. Yeah, I know, I know. Two holes, not two holes. Yes, yes, yes. Um uh, I think the best way, possibly even the only way to learn about yourself is through relationships. I think that's true in regard to not just romantic, but work, relationships, family, everything. What sort of thing says, Krishnamurti says, he says you are only like here because of relationships. If nobody had a relationship with you, you wouldn't exist. (laughs) And you think about it, it's true. If nobody had any relationship with you, Do you even exist? Because you've got no interaction with anything.
2: Yeah. Like Robinson, you'd be like Robinson (laughs) Crusoe.
0: Yeah, basically. Yeah. Like, oh, you still haven't seen Castaway? I haven't seen Castaway, but I need. I've been. It's been referenced many times now. We had uh, my friend. He he had the Castaway look apparently, so I need to look it up. It's classic. There should be bonus. Yes, I think relationships should be like bonus. Looking at it as like a bonus. I think so. Like, oh, mm. this is a bonus to my yeah, life. Yeah, I agree, actually.
2: Because yeah. it's, it's, so it's partly in the hands of fate. I mean, I hate to break it to you, right? But it, there's not some kind of magic formula. And, you, you know, it might be... Imagine what it was like in the past when people lived in a little village in Straw Huts, right? You know, like, if you met someone and fell in love with them, lucky you. But maybe you don't. Like, it's kind of the luck of the draw, buddy. Like, and, you know, even today, like you know, it's like that to some extent as well. Like if you meet, you know, you might just be unlucky and have a string of bad relationships. You bump into the wrong people. Right? And then eventually you meet the right person and it's a whole different ball ballgame. Right? It completely transforms your perception of yourself. But it's like, um, it's a crapshoot, right? Dating or relationships or whatever, you know, it's like a roll of the dice. And then you don't really know, obviously you can be more careful about the type of people you meet and the circles you move in and you know like what your criteria are but at the end of the day you don't control other people you know and i'll tell you i'll let you in on a secret scott people are different behind closed doors mm. like so you know you you meet people and they seem quite normal at first like and then you live with them for a few weeks or months like and then their <laughs> true character emerges behind closed doors like you know, you have conversations with people get buying clothes, you think, "Geez, man, if anybody was listening to this, like, imp- what, you know, what's being said in private here. But when you're dating people, you don't see that side of them at first. Like, that's how people uh, partly end up in toxic relationships, because it takes a while for the kind of pathology to emerge. People keep it a secret when they've got yeah. violent tempers, like, and... Uh, you know,
0: that's often the case, isn't it? Like the people would say, like, he was such a lovely person. la la, la. My mother mentioned that, my, my father, to be honest, she was like, yeah. And all my family were like, yeah, he'd come to the club. He would bring the flowers to your mother. He'd, he'd get everyone drinks. He'd, you know, flash his cash. And then as soon as he got with her, he didn't give any money. He didn't, it didn't engage at all. It was the opposite. As soon as he got the goal, it was the opposite behavior, which is what true behavior was. That's a good, that's a a lot of people do that. Yeah. They fake someone to, so you know, they could like, you know, get someone, but um, yeah. there's a new app coming out now because basically it's app it's out now. It's like some, it's basically they create in private rooms online. So you, when you sign up, you, you have to get invited into this room. So someone knows who everybody is, but as you come in, it's like a masquerade. So nobody knows who's talking in the groups. So you've got your own fake names. And the reason they're doing it is because they were like talking to these tech founders and they're like, oh mate, you know when you did that post the other day about like, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or whatever, it's great. And he's like, no, I don't believe that. That's just, that's just the PR side. I don't actually believe that. And then this guy was like, everybody probably has the same thing. Nobody actually believes what they're putting out there. So let's get them in a private room to say what they actually believe. And now they're uh-huh. trying to get those rooms going. And it, I, that's going to kick right off if you think about it. Well, I mean, strange. this is one of the things I here's like this is just a,
2: a, a random thought, but I'm going to say it like because it's one of my little kind of things. I think, what do I what would I teach my daughter growing up? Like, if I was going to hand over like something to her, if I could teach her some kind of like little pearl of wisdom or whatever, uh, one would be like I was saying to you a minute ago, in a sense, like human nature means that people conceal a lot of stuff, right? So one of the things you learn as a psychotherapist, 52% of people in America, according to the largest ever prevalence study by the National Institute of Health, have a current or historical uh, mental health diagnosis or meet the criteria for one, right? But funnily enough, people that have mental health problems don't normally wear a badge that says, I've got borderline personality disorder or I've got clinical depression or whatever, right? So that means shock horror that we tend to underestimate the prevalence of mental health problems because people keep it secret. Mm
0: -hmm. But if you're a
2: psychotherapist, you work with people that tell you like, you know, like really they're suicidal. They've considered doing this. They've considered doing that. You know, they have these kind of like horrific anxieties that torture them or whatever. And that's the guy that works in the bank or that drives your bus or, you know, that you're dating online or, you know, so like, you know, anxieties, depression, other problems are more, more common than people realize. And we, for the very simple stating the obvious reason that people are embarrassed to admit it. So they keep it secret. So we all massively underestimate it. I'll give you another example. It's the same, but different. Like people underestimate how much debt, like uh, it's oh, kind yeah. of like the average yeah. debt, like because people don't go around with a badge a sticker on the forehead saying they owe like you know 50 grand or whatever. Like but so people underestimate how how prevalent debt is. Like physical health problems as well. I wish I need to dig this out. There's some good statistics on like over 40, 50, like how common chronic health problems are, right? So like there's a tendency for people just to kind of assume by default that other people don't have chronic health problems. And, and then we're all puzzled. We go, I don't understand why that guy was being a bit cranky with me today. Like, mm. well, like, maybe he's got some kind of health problem. Like, maybe, you know, it could be something like sciatica or whatever it's playing up really badly for maybe gets migraines or something like... But these things are all over the place. People don't tell you about them, right? But common sense tells you, like, mental health problems, financial problems, relationship problem, like... People don't print it on a T-shirt, though. And if you knew what was going on in their lives, you'd probably view their behavior differently. But common sense tells us, like, these things are common. They're everywhere around us.
0: That's the main takeaway, isn't it? To realize that. I think you become way more empathetic in general, and you'll be a nice, a kinder person, more patient, everything. It'll make you a better person all around. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's key. But, yeah, I think... um, the interviews on now the royal interview
2: oh we should we maybe
0: we should we should we wrap up then so that everybody can get off and check out the latest drama with the royals what maybe if they believe it's true love or not who knows what is this love they have what is the love with the royal family well do you
2: know famously prince charles said that like he was interviewed after was it when he was engaged and so there's a clip of it he was with princess diana and they, uh, they said, so you guys really in love? And Prince Charles says, well, what is love? Like, and people are like, well, that doesn't bode well. Like, you don't say that in front of your fiancé.
0: Yeah, he was in love with someone else when he yeah. didn't, want to say, didn't want to say, we'll have to talk about that next week. Yes, let's talk about love start off next week and that shenanigans and stuff like that. We have a lot to say. Let's get into it. Last week, next week, so obviously... Strike and soul challenge, and uh, it's been awesome, but yeah, next week, Donald, bring us how are the, t- t- how are the,
2: t- how are the turtles getting on? Like, well, are they all meeting their goals
0: and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'd say there's something called the valley of despair viewed a bit. Yeah, so, you know, I spoke that's typically what happens week three to four. I think a lot of people are feeling a lockdown, but a lot of people are only up now, Donald. They're doing well. They're God, the- I don't even. Need- this morning, bro, I had, a, I had my cold shower every
2: morning. Yeah. Like, i um, fasting today. I even I forget. like So I fast. Oh, every Monday I fast anyway, every time. So every time, actually, I'm fasting. And uh, doing my one meal a day. And I went. I jumped my rope and stuff, right? And uh, I went to the park again today. The kids were all doing taekwondo. There was a load of, like, uh, school kids doing taekwondo in the park. So I was, like, jumping my wee skipping rope. Like... Like in the park for a while, like, so. I've got calves like bricks, Scott. Jelly. Like, I just need to do the rest of the whole the whole rest of my body now. I've got one muscle group that's like
0: get on the press ups, Donald. Do you know what? Do you want to do? Um, my favorite workout of the week is the boxing class that one of the instructors does. I'll send you a link to it to do yeah, it. That'd be good. You can do it. it no equipment it's, f- it's fucking brilliant. Honest to God. I used, to good
2: at, I used to do it for a long time, all my life, I've, I, my entire life actually, pretty much my whole life, I've done press-ups every day, just not as many now, but for a little, like a long time I did, uh, I would do 100 press-ups a day, like, and it was quite good, I used to do, i do that thing where you clap your hands. Ah, see, so you were a, a pro. And then my wee girl would lie on my back, and I'd do press-ups with her, like, sitting on my back, like, but I don't think that was very good for my slip disc. I think you could be a fitness influencer. I think
0: we just have to change position. Sure. No, no.
2: I need to up my game a little bit. We we'll uh,
0: maybe Poppy could do that. Like <laughs> I'll get, I'll train her up. She could be a fitness influencer. Do it. Well, I need to get um. I've I posted your stoic soup in the group as well. So I'm gonna follow up on that. If anybody's tried I it, really I need can't. to try it this weekend. So put hairs on your chest. What's that? Put hairs in your chest. Grass doesn't grow in steel, Donald. <laughs>
2: the grass doesn't grow in steel.
0: yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you, uh, I think it's very nutritious. It's a load of vegetables. It's good for the winter. Well, yeah. Well, we we'll, when it gets to the cold winters, no doubt. But I'm gonna get it going in the summer. I'm gonna try it out, and then hopefully we'll uh, we get the stomach soup trending. On, yeah, sure. I'll make some soon. Make someone s- s- send a photo. I never get around to it. Lalia makes a lot of soup. Yeah, well, you're lucky, Aaron. She does mm-hmm. her yoga,
2: like, pretty consistent. Every day she does her yoga. Like, uh,
0: so, you know, discipline, self-discipline, consistency. Like, we, do yoga. we do yoga twice a week, mind. I'll send you links to the the replays, and you can give us your... Lalia can give her opinion on yoga. You can give opinion on boxing. Happy days. That'd be great. I'll enjoy that. Like,
2: I'll go to the park. You know, all the kids out, like, train out in the park here. It's good to see them out in the open. Like I said, they're all doing taekwondo with their pads and everything. Like, they we're doing spinning back kicks today, or like 12 like year olds, 14 year olds, whatever. Like, a big crowd of them in the local park doing it out in the
0: sunshine. Don't mess with them, man. No. We need, you, like... <laughs> we need you to build Plato's Republic. So. I don't know why they're so into martial arts in Greece, actually.
2: I think they had a long history of wrestling. was a big cultural thing here, historically.
0: Maybe it's kind of still in their blood. Yeah. Well, a good book for you to read if we finish it on this one is uh, 100 Nasty Women of History. Talks about, in a good way, like badass women. And one one of them was the founder, one of the Shaolin monk temple people. She was the founder of Wing Chun, which is what Bruce Lee was taught.
2: She taught, to
0: of... she taught it to a girl called Wing Chun, who was like, basically, yeah. uh, she didn't want to marry this man. And she was like, to the husband, well, future husband, she's like, look, if we have a fight and I win, I don't have to marry you. He's like, yeah, obviously. And she got taught Wing Chun, and then boom,
2: All right.
0: fucked her up. Uh, I, well, I mean, I think uh, very interesting,
2: like Medea. like, it's pretty badass, though she's kind of evil. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> a little bit evil, and, uh, or whatever, misguided, deeply misguided. There's some bad at the Pythia, we've talked about, the Temple of Apollo. But my favorite badass woman from history, right? I have a soft spot for like my wee girls, one of my wee girls' favorite badass women from history. There's a movie coming out about her, like, um, I guess it's in a year or two Cleopatra. Hmm. big fan of Cleopatra. Like one of the most highly educated women, like in ancient history, like a general,
0: like
2: she commanded the Egyptian army.
0: Well, she married Julius Caesar, no? Yeah, I had a kid with him. Isn't there's another woman I read up about who was trying to become the second kind of Cleopatra? She basically took Egypt of Egypt off Rome at one point. Uh, who would that be? What's her name? She basically was like she took the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And then uh, Cla- mm. I think it was Claudius who was like, okay, there's time to sort this out. It was after Augustus. Claudius was after Augustus. Yeah. Yeah, it was Claudius. Claudius. Like, okay, I'm going to have to sort her out now. But she took e- Egypt off Rome and they just like left her for a bit and she was trying to be like the next Cleopatra, basically. Yeah. Uh, like, Cleopatra Batman. was
2: basically the last of the, uh, the pharaohs. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, she was like a... Highly educated uh,
0: women, very powerful women. Very, the Romans were scared of her. I think. Well, she would. She had that, like obviously that that like there's rumors ago about, didn't it? Like ah, she's this. She's got these powers. Probably she can do this. She can control I thought you. Thought she was a witch. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best way to get in someone's head, in not it? Do you think you've got superpowers? You've already won the battle. Got them running scared. Yeah. Right. But that, she was she was apparently like stunning as well wasn't she
2: She's no good... actually um the, even some of the ancient sources kind of question that the, the funny they say that she was kind of very sensual and, and and that kind of sense attractive but there's also i think there's actually a coin that has a depiction of her and it's not flattering <laughs> what can you yeah, do with the... coin? what can you do
0: with a, feel... a coin well, like, well you like, even a pop, in the you coin,
2: know. she doesn't look like. Stun- <laughs> like, I'm saying that, that. No, this is the judginess coming through from Poppy. Like, because she was watching a documentary about it, and she was like, uh, they had Liz Taylor or whatever at one point, and then they showed the coin, and the, and Poppy was like, "Whoa, that's not like that. Doesn't look like Liz Taylor." Like, you know, imagine so, not being like, judged. Like, I'll just
0: make a coin out of you now and be like, look at Donald on a coin, and be like, "Fuck no."
2: No, no, like his nose is all wonky and stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it it was point, a bad coin.
2: It was bad a dent- point.
0: that point. They probably went to hell, but yeah, maybe that's maybe she wasn't, but she must have been. She must have been because there were so many stories about her beauty, wasn't it?
2: No, they well, they they talk, they're, maybe there were later, but the I think it's Plutarch or um, some of the sources say that she was. It was more like she made herself seem attractive. Because she was very kind of erotic, very sensual, um, but not like necessarily. Uh, That's interesting. Actually, a, an attractive woman to begin with. Well, do you want to get? Do you want to uh, get a personality? Maybe.
0: Yeah. Do you want to get a roundup on Cleopatra for next week? We will talk about Cleopatra, love, all that stuff.
2: Maybe we could talk about Cleopatra. Like cool. that would I've be cool. That would be good. I've got. Cool. I get some good pictures of. Uh, I can show you the, I'll show you the coin and you guys can be all judgy like for yourselves then. Okay, like, yeah, I'm down for that. Uh, you know, I'll shoot on Liz Taylor. That's an amazing film. That's a beautiful film. Is that Anthony and Cleopatra or whatever? The one that no one watches because it's like three hours long.
0: Like yeah. uh it, it's costumes and stuff are stunning though. Well, let's cover Cleopatra then. Let's do it. Right on. Right then, Donald.
2: What's her name? Gal is gonna play on Wonder Woman oh, wait. No. I don't know that Scott.
0: She's you know, like, you know, you haven't got your finger in the pulse of the the movies. She's Wonder right. Woman. What she's not Cleopatra. Can't be both. Well, uh, she could be actually. Cleopatra maybe is Wonder Woman. Who knows? Maybe Wonder Woman was based of Cleopatra. I'm thinking about it. Wonder Woman, Cleopatra, both Greek ethnically. Like, right. because a lot of people
2: are saying Galgado doesn't look Egyptian. Like, right. but well, uh, what's on uh, Cleopatra was the last of the Ptolemaic dynasty who descended from one of the generals of Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, like, a couple hundred years later or whatever. So, like, she was actually ethnically Greek or Macedonian.
0: Yeah, uh, Persian. Is it Persian?
2: No, Persian was more east, was it? Actually, she had some Greek, she, I think she had some Persian blood, like, it's a mixture of like Greek and Persian. Calgadol would be perfect for it, she's
0: stunning. Yeah, yeah. No, she she'd be good. I'm excited. Like,
2: yeah, like, I'm looking forward to it. Like, so if you if you're a dad and you've got a wee girl, like I think all so. the dads are like, yes, like Wonder Woman, like anything like that.
0: off you go watch the Space Girls and Wonder Woman, like <laughs> get fighting, <laughs> get ready to war. Oh, but there we are then. Happy days. It'd be lovely session again, Donald. I enjoy these Monday nights a lot. But we'll uh, touch base, good. and I'll see you next week.
2: Yeah. See you everyone. Bye-bye. Hey,